0: listening to the new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchi. How are you? What's happening? What's new? I am fresh from a few days off. I just did a pretty awesome and epic photo shoot uh, with Gina. Uh, she uh, just did a brand new fashion campaign for uh, the Bruno Mali uh, brand, which is like a shoe clothing. Uh, I think they do purses and stuff. Really cool people. Uh, and this is Gina's second big shoot with these guys and uh, she asked me to do light direction. She wanted me to direct the lighting for it, and uh, it was really cool. Like the treatment for it is like old 1950s, 1960s uh, Hollywood, but not Hollywood, but uh, like uh, Rome, like uh, Italian cinema. And so we, we had a soundstage, we built sets, and we actually brought in like old, old school tungsten units for lighting. Um, For those of you who know lighting and cinematography, it was old maxi-brutes, old pan lights. These are lights that uh, were used back in the day, back in the Hitchcock days, um, definitely through the 80s and the 70s. Uh, We dusted these things off and uh, I got to play with them, which was a lot of fun. And I got to spend two days really just focusing on lighting and lighting theory, which was a lot of fun. And I got to uh, dust off the old light meters (laughs) A lot of you new filmmakers out there are like, why do you need a fucking light meter? I got these really great monitors. It was really cool. Very cool stuff to do. I could actually do a whole episode just about lighting and light meters. Um, But we shot some beautiful stuff. Uh, And it'll be out in the next month or two months or something like that. Um, And I'll make sure that you guys see it. Um, But the work is just gorgeous. and It was the most fun I've had in a long time. It was really nice to just dive into a department, dive into the lighting department and get real nerdy with science, get really nerdy with lighting, um, and then plan it out to such an extent that when we got on set, it was a very simple and easy breezy thing to do. Uh, So it was a blast. It was a lot of fun to do. Um, So we took a few days off, and I'm back at it recording new episodes of the podcast. And I appreciate you guys for sticking with me for tuning in our listenership has been going up which is fantastic um the viewership on the instagram accounts have been increasing radically which is super cool thank you guys and if you don't already go follow me on instagram at in love with the process pod that's in love with the process pod on instagram you can also follow my personal account that's at MikePetchy on instagram as well uh, I've been posting all sorts of really cool stuff. When I released the uh, mini episode about the Godzilla movie stuff, you guys saw a bunch of really cool old school behind the scenes set photos from Toho Studios, which is really cool to post. Um, and I've also been doing a bunch of polls. I've been talking to folks, finding out who you guys are as listeners. Uh, so keep your eyes out because every once in a while I'll do a post that talks about like what do you do for work and what is your dream job. And I love doing the back and forth and and the people that i meet it's so fucking mind-blowing to me the weird range of people that listen to the show like i've got filmmakers of course i've got photographers of course i've got morticians i've got scientists i've got army like army brats and and all sorts of different people really cool uh so if you want to check all that stuff out it's kind of a little bit of a community that's building on there you want to be a part of it like i said go follow us on instagram so, what is this show all about, right? If you looked at the graphic, you might know. Um, but how many of you notice this? Once we start following filmmakers, once you start um, talking about filmmaking, the algorithms pick all that shit up and you start to get those consistent ads. Consistent ads from professionals that are like, Do "You are you looking for clients? And of course... We're all looking for clients because we're all hungry. So we're like, yes, yeah, yeah, we're looking for clients. Uh, Do you want to have constant clients to pay you the money that you deserve? And you're like, ooh, that's great. You know, it's like they're just feeding right into those things that you need. Well, we'll tell you how to do it. We'll give you all the tips and tricks so you can have all the clients. Maybe it's just the cynical side of me, but I look at this, this person or these people, and I sit there and go, if it really fucking works so hard or works so well for you, why are you telling me about it? Why are you spending the time to record the video for this ad? Why did you go through the process of creating all that content to just sell it to me, right? If you were so good at that shit, and you were such at the top of your game as an advertiser, why would you need to be doing this? Wouldn't that keep you busy enough? And maybe that's just me being cynical. Maybe that's just me being naive. Um, but yeah, right? Doesn't that make sense? And I know it's a little weird coming from me, a guy who has a podcast, a guy who has a podcast about filmmaking, but I hope you guys feel this way when you listen to it. To me, this show is almost more of a journal than anything else. It's just access to how I see things, access to my experiences as I go through them. And you guys are getting a lot of this stuff real time from me. Like I will talk to like Wade Wilson about stunt work and I have no idea what he's going to tell me and actually be sitting here writing the shit down at the same time that you're sitting there writing that shit down. So um, for me, it's just, I feel like it's, I'm trying to be genuine about this, right? And so you see all these other folks that from the outside, from my perspective, I'm like, how fucking genuine are you really? If you're doing this, right? Now, here's how we get to what today's show's about. A few weeks ago, I uh, got asked to go be a guest on the Indie Film Hustle podcast, and it's hosted by this dude, Alex Ferrari. And if you know indie filmmakers, you know he's been around for a while. You know, he's been doing stuff since like the 90s. Um, And, you know, the philosophy is go do other podcasts, meet other people. You'll find some listeners from that podcast, and they'll come over to your podcast. And so uh, I went on and we talked about, um, it's a really great podcast. I'll put the link uh, in the description somewhere, Um, but it's a really great podcast. We talk about um, proof of concept filmmaking, talk about my story of pitching 12KM. Uh, It's a great one. And if you haven't heard it yet, you should definitely go over there and check it out. Um, But he was a really nice dude. Talked to him. We talked about stuff. He's a very gracious host. Um, and afterwards, it was like, you know, he's like, hey, I'd love to be on your show. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's probably a great thing to do. Because you were so gracious. You let me on your show. I got to talk about my stuff. And you seem like you're an interesting cat. So sure, yeah, yeah. I'll have you on your show. I'll have you on my show. A couple of weeks go by. And then he writes to me. He's like, hey, here's some stuff and everything else. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Then right before the podcast happens, and this is me being completely honest with you guys. I'm sitting here going like, why am I having this guy on the show? I don't really know a lot about him. I got to do some research. Let me dig in deep. I mean, he's got a great podcast and Indie Film Hustle seems cool. I don't know that much about it though. So let me do some research. And so I started to look into it and turns out that he's been in the business for over 20 years. Uh, He's done uh, two, I think he's done like two features, directed two features at this point. Uh, a bunch of really amazing post-production. He's worked on commercials, music videos, like he's got that history. He's got the same kind of history I do, which is really cool. Um, And he's got a couple of uh, features that look interesting. Um, He's got this new film that's coming out uh, about a, a group of filmmakers that go to Sundance to try to find this producer that is supposedly gonna buy their movie, which he shoots all illegally live at Sundance. No permits, no nothing. He runs around and shoots an entire feature. I think he says it's in like four days at Sundance, which is fascinating. Um, and then he also just finished writing this book and he's releasing a book called Shooting for the Mob, like shooting for mobsters. And it's interesting. It's like he gets, he gets hooked up with some scary people uh, with the promise that they'll finance his movie and that he could direct this thing uh, and it goes to some pretty crazy places for him and almost uh, destroys his career as a director and his self-confidence as a director which is interesting so this episode ends up being sort of a an interesting cautionary tale uh, into something that we don't like to acknowledge early on in our careers which is like who are we actually partnering up with uh, what Is the motivation of these people that come and promise things like hey you want clients hey uh, you want to direct a movie I can give you this money it's there's there's two ways to go you can either be like me which is super cynical and then you have to fight your way out of that or you can go the other way where you're just very naive and it's like yeah the world's an amazing place and these people are gonna fucking provide for me and this you have to ride that gray area you got to find that that in between Uh, We talk about that a little bit on this show, but it's interesting to hear his experiences with that, um, which is super cool. Uh, And um, there's a lot of other really good stuff to get into. And surprisingly, because I've already recorded it, uh, surprisingly, uh, he starts to open up about why he runs Indie Film Hustle. And I let him know right on the show. I'm like, look, I'm just trying to figure out whether or not you're snake (laughs) snake oil salesman, man. Like, I don't know what your motivations are. And uh, he goes into some really fascinating stuff about our mental state, about changing your rhythms, about challenging yourself creatively. Uh, It goes to a really good spot. It's a very motivational episode and it becomes one. Uh, So if you're into that, if you're looking for some new ideas on how to change the way you see things, if you're looking to assess yourself Uh, and where you are personally right now it's a good idea to listen to this episode and if you are basically just looking for help I think there's a lot of really good help in this episode I think it's been a long enough intro don't you guys so you know the deal find yourself a nice comfortable place right now it's the summer here It's, we're pushing about 80 degrees here in Boston. The windows are open. Sit next to that window, feel the breeze coming in. Throw on those noise canceling headphones. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the new episode of "In Love of the Process. So, okay. Hey Alex, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir, for having me. I appreciate it, brother. Well, hey man, like we, I was super pumped to be on your podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a lot of fun talking about shit, and I figured uh, yes. it would be yes, cool to to dig deeper. You know what I
1: mean? Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate it. it is uh, as of this recording, we uh, just released your episode yesterday, yeah. and it's it's doing very well, and people are really loving it and uh i've been getting a lot of uh, a lot of comments about it so i knew i knew it would be it's it's pretty long it's like what 90, 90 is it 90 minutes
0: something like that yeah no it's a great yeah. episode i've got a lot of good responses from it and i really enjoy sort of this cross promotional stuff that we can mm-hmm. do as podcasters and, and filmmakers and mm-hmm. and i mean the whole reason why i do this fucking show is just to meet cool people and so yeah. it's cool <laughs> to meet you it's cool to have these yeah. conversations. And then um, I had just known uh, bits and pieces about you because, you know, the indie the indie film hustle thing and everything that you're doing has a presence online. Um, I think that's how I originally found you was someone told me about it and I sort of came through to that. Um, but just sort of prepping for this episode, I dug in deep and I had no idea all the stuff that you've been working on. And so it's, I'd like to get into a bit of it. Absolutely. Um, I'm, 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 I'm your sir. Ask away. All right, dude. Well, um, so how did you, let's. Let's just play this the way I usually do on this show. Uh, you're a director. Why? Why did you decide to be a director? How did you get to that point?
1: Uh, it was my days in the video store. Ah. I started. I started. Uh, I got a job in a video store when I was about 14, mm-hmm. uh, illegally 14. So right. I was just working. I was just work. I was like doing like cleaning the shelves and stuff. But by the time I turned 15, I was the store manager, which was awesome because i was just hustling i was hustling so hard and i was so such a go-getter even at that young age that the owner of the company or or, of the store is like do you want to manage i'm like yeah i'll manage because that's great so i'm a 15 year old managing like 20 year olds like insanely cool um (laughs) like super cool telling 20 year olds like go dust the shelves um so, but I did that for about four years or so, all throughout high school, maybe four to five years, all throughout high school and, and a little bit before. Mm-hmm. And that's where I fell in love with movies, really fell in love with movies. because I always loved movies. I had, you know, I had a little camera where I shot some cool stuff, but where I really dug deep into films was, is just the first time, the ability to just sit and watch hundreds, if not thousands, actually it was thousands of movies during the course of those four years by... Watching things while I worked in the background, playing Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I beat Mike Tyson's Punch Out in five days. I'm very proud of that. But then, then went and then promptly on day six, my eyes went blurry, and I thought I was going blind. Uh, true story. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but during all that time, I just watched movies constantly, and it opened my world up to just cinema in general. And then, and then my my boss, uh, who was the owner of the store, he would introduce me to foreign films. He'd introduce me to independent films. Uh, and and all these... And independence being like in the late 80s wasn't a lot of independent stuff yet. It started coming in really like 89, 90, 91. That's when the, the glory days of of the indie movement kind of started with mariachi and Reservoir yeah. and, and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And uh, even before that was a film that doesn't get talked about as much as it should. Hollywood Shuffle. Oh, right.
0: Robert Townsend,
1: man, he was really the first guy to make a movie with his credit cards. He was the first guy to do it. And, you know, people don't take it seriously because it's a comedy and it's a fantastic comedy. Uh, But it was the first time that was kind of done, or at least that I knew about it. And uh, and I kind of started that ball rolling. And and then when I got out of high school, people are like, what are you going to do with your life? And I literally looked around my room which had 3000 VHS tapes that I had collected over the course I'm not even exaggerating it was literally about 3000 color coordinated with the sleeves uh, <laughs> separated by 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 studio no it was, I was I was I was not well I didn't such a video as, store clerk at that point. I mean I had nothing else to do I did not have much of a social life when I was in high school uh, so I just turned around I literally this is exactly the moment I looked around my room and I said well I guess I'm going to be a director and that's literally that easy as that and I just went to my my mom and I said hey I want to be a director she's like alright let's go look for a film school and that was essentially how I how my my career got started
0: it's so funny because I've talked about video store stuff on on prior episodes and the romance behind that stuff and mm. when you talk about Video store clerk, that is such a dream job when you're a teenager, like a a preteen. Like, I remember my my video store clerk looked like fucking Sam Elliott from fucking Roadhouse. You know what I mean? He was like, he'd lay back with his cowboy boots on the fucking desk, and he had that low voice, and he'd come, and you'd put something on the counter, he goes, you don't want this, and he'd show something else, and it was like, fuck, that guy was super cool to me. It was like, I was obsessed with dudes like that, and I was obsessed with like radio DJs and people that were showing music. Cause I went yeah, the yeah, yeah. I went the other route. I worked for a music store for years. When I was mm-hmm. sixteen, I had to be legal sixteen, and then uh, did it that way. But yeah, it's super cool, man. And just the whole the romance of like going into a store, whether you're buying music or whether you're are, are renting a movie, and and getting that experience, like the physical experience of looking at the art, being exposed to the posters first, being exposed to the stuff on the shelf. Remember the difference between watching movies then as opposed to watching movies now, which is fascinating, where then you'd pick something up and hope it was fucking good. And maybe you, maybe you read a review in the newspaper... Maybe a friend of yours was like, "You gotta see this fucking movie." This dude had exploding. Well, the back! Of,
1: don't forget the back of the box. That's exactly. where the reviews were. So exactly. You know, that's when Roger Ebert meant something. That's when two thumbs up meant exactly. something. Exactly. Now it does No one really cares as much anymore about critics and, and their reviews. Now it's all Rotten Tomatoes.
0: Yeah, well, and then Rotten Tomatoes. We can get a, the whole other conversation about that. But yeah, I fucking love that and the art and everything involved with that. And, and I was an art kid to begin with, so I would covers would infatuate. <sighs> Oh yeah. You know, and especially the covers mm-hmm. that were bigger and better than the film ever was. So like most
1: so most films in the 80s, basically.
0: Yeah, what, what was that Clint Eastwood movie? And the cover was done by Frazetta, and he's sort of like stepping out of like a bus that was turned over, and he's got a gun drawn. It was all illustrated. It's like Enforcer or something like that. What the fuck was it called?
1: Oh, was it oh you mean like the early, like the Dirty Harry stuff?
0: It wasn't Dirty Harry, it was like a different one. And there was this really great cover done by Frazetta, and I'm gonna fucking forget it. Um, but it was illustrated in the line of fire, not in the line of fire. It was illustrated. Yeah. We'll dig it up. We'll Um, dig it up. We'll look it up. But that cover just had me hooked. And of course that wasn't in the fucking movie. That that whole sequence wasn't in the fucking movie
1: for people to understand. Like, I mean, that's why all my films have hand-drawn covers. Even my book has a hand-drawn cover on it. One, because I have a really great friend who's an artist and I keep pounding him for the last 15 years to any single time I make a movie. I'm like, you got to make a poster. He's like, Alex, I work at ILM now. I don't have time. Like Dan, you know you've got to do it. He's like, God damn it, Alex. So, um, uh, so. But I love that 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 hand drawn look to it. And anytime you you don't see it often anymore. Now it's all floating heads and other crap like that on yeah. on posters. It's all about this, this that kind of stuff. But every once in a while, even the studios will bust out a hand drawn version, like a a, a a Drew. Oh God. Drew Strausen, Drew Strausen, you know, who's, if anyone who doesn't know who Drew Strausen's work is, he basically did Star Wars, Indiana Jones, every, every hand drawn thing you've ever can think of. He's an amazing artist, but they, they just pop so much more, at least for me. And you could do so much more with a hand drawn, like, exactly.
0: Exactly. Like those
1: '80s, like those '80s horror movies and action movies, like The Exterminator, which was like obvious ripoff of The Terminator. Yes. you know that was just so. You look at the cover, and like It Lives, you know, or you know Faces of Death, you oh, know, all dude, these. Dude, even go of,
0: go to like Mad Max. Like go back to the oh, yeah, Mad, Mad yeah, Max
1: poster, the original Mad Maxes, and and the, in the temp, uh, Thunderdome, and all these just so wonderfully illustrated and it's it's a lost art now it really is not as much but like I said anytime I make a movie I generally even when it's inappropriate I will have it hand
0: drawn yeah super cool I figured <laughs> it, you'd get nerdy with me on that being a video oh yeah. man. oh
1: absolutely dude fun dude, shit absolutely
0: yeah all right so you uh decided that you're gonna go to uh film school right so I, I think I read you went to like full sale right you went down I did to go Florida, to full Florida. Sale. yeah how was mm-hmm. that how was that experience for you
1: uh, Full Sail was a you know I was it was like year five of their film program so it was still early on now they're some, they own the world it's massive but when I was there you know it was a I loved my film I loved my film school experience it was just I enjoyed I was going to school every day to learn stuff about making movies hmm. and it was it was a it was a dream come true it was a, literally a dream come true. But uh, unfortunately, I was caught between the time of the change, which is that digital analog change, which was in the mid 90s heavily, where we went from cutting on flatbed film or in the video world, you know, doing tape to tape, you know, online, arguably called onlining Uh, their offline processes weren't as, you know, like 95, 96, you know, the software was not there. Yeah, um, I worked on something called a montage, and uh, which was a horrendous piece of software and a horrendous system that never worked properly. I
0: remember it. Yes,
1: it was on Windows three one one. It was horrible, and I remember taking the floppy disk and walking over to the CMX three thousand six hundred, plugging it in with the tapes, and then watching it promptly not work constantly. I'm like, <laughs> what is the purpose of this? And uh, so I was caught between that, and there was no digital tape yet mini dv hadn't really kicked in yet yeah. so the second i got out of college i was basically basically 98 percent of everything i learned there was now obsolete i learned most of everything i learned on on the street as they say mm. uh in 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 the you know in in the in the street basically on 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 job and you know, the best things I learned at film school, I say this uh, all the time. I'm like, I knew I learned how to wrap a cable. <laughs> extremely important. I learned how to make a good cup of coffee. Also, extremely important when you're starting out. Uh, I, I can make a cup of coffee, put a little bit of Cuban coffee in there, a little bit of Maxwell House extra strength mixed it up real nice, it was solid. and that helped me get get me some work when I was first coming up as an intern and things people were like that's the kid who makes a a cup of coffee, hire him. yeah uh, so but that was basically I learned more doing my internship at Universal because I, I, I was in Orlando, so I got to do a back lot of MGM studio. It was called Disney MGM at the time, uh, which is basically this Disney Studios in Orlando. And I was working with the producer of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, oh. the original, you know, at the yeah. time, the biggest independent film of all time. And we made like, you know, because it was a completely independent film, the original Ninja Turtle movies.
0: No shit. So I
1: was working, yeah, I was working on hit with him on a show where I was an intern and it was a comedy show. It was kind of like a Saturday Night Live comedy show, um, spoof thing. And I was there, like with, I was hanging out with the actors and, and the comedians and You know, revving up the audience. That was my job was kind of like do the audience, you know, come in, come out. But I learned more on working at Universal Studios and also working on like shows like Sequest. Mm -hmm. If you remember Sequest back in the day, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the guy who did Swamp Thing, I worked with him. Uh, the original Swamp Thing, not the new one that's coming out on DC, but like the original TV Swamp Thing. I remember. So it, I'm yes. I'm there, like I'm there working, and I learned more working as a office PA, you know, sitting next to the writers and sitting next to the guy who does cleanup and, and seeing how the producers walk. I learned so much during that time than I did at school. Uh, it was like, you know, I, I it, it was just different. So I I would skip school to go to do my internships because I just learned more that way. And I always, you know, I, I think I was. Either first or second in my class, uh, grade-wise, because I just was absorbed with it, dude. Like my 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 studio apartment had framed pictures of Kubrick, Coppola, Spielberg, and I think Lucas and Scorsese. And I had framed pictures of that with my like mini. I brought my mini um, VHS collection with me because I couldn't bring the three thousand because that's insane. But I brought <laughs> five hundred, um, and I had like so. Like friends would come over, like dude, you're like I'm like dude. This is all I do. This is like all I do. I'm editing at home. I'm editing at my studio apartment between two VCRs doing sh- like shooting stuff on the weekends and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I know it sounds barbaric to anyone listening today from today's generation, but I, I don't even know what a guy like you and I would have done with today's technology at that age. Like I, I yeah. can't even comprehend what I would have been able to do. Yeah,
0: no, because it was weird because you're just a little bit older than I am and we've we sort of come up the same way. And I remember when, we, when I first started, it was more about the same sort of shit, where you're trying to learn how, the tech, like how it works and hanging out with people. And mm-hmm. I, got, I worked at a, a community access TV station, so I had access to like big-time camera gear and all that kind of shit. And I would just all take right. it and play with it. And then there hit this point, like I'd say there, there hit this point at the end of the 90s, where you started to get into the digital revolution. And then a big part of our, my day-to-day was like learning new tech. And tech was like a huge part of filmmaking where it was like, we're playing with this new technology, this digital technology that hasn't mastered itself. No one's giving it any sort of serious thought. How do I take this video that looks like shit, 60p or whatever the fuck, and how do I make it look good? And so years and years and years were spent like figuring that shit out, figuring out edit systems. What's the, what's the best edit system to be cutting on? I, I remember working on Sony Vegas for a while. And, and oh, sorry about that. Yeah, all that yeah, stuff. That's, that's painful. And then, so you just, there's probably years logged of me just sort of working with the industry as it sort of figures itself out. Mm -hmm. And and that, I think, uh, now it's a lot different because now you have what we do. You have like YouTube, you have all this stuff where it's very simple for you. To actually go on and, and learn something. And whenever I have a, an intern or someone work for me, and they come to me and they go, I can't figure this thing out. I go, oh, why the fuck not? You literally have YouTube. You can tell me that you're doing your job. Go sit down at the computer. Look it up. Someone's going to show you how to do it. And then you can learn it in like 15 minutes and do it. Yeah. With anything. Yeah. We, we didn't have any of that crap. None of that stuff existed. So... I'm not saying that we're better of it because of that. I think that there's a lot of other skills that we have. Like I I cut my movies on an old Steam Deck, and I learned mm-hmm. tape cutting and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, just a different... Uh, I think there's a, a greater respect for the time and the preparation that comes from where our end of it is because everything mm-hmm. is an instant gratification. Like right now, everything's like... Well, it's also... Right, it's, it's kind of like going into
1: you know, cinematography and the cinematographer who, who has shot film all his life mm-hmm. and then transfers in, in transitions to digital, they know their stuff because film, you can't play around. Like you can't just, let's turn it on and see what happens. Like it doesn't work that way. You really need to understand so much more about light, about exp- exposure, about lenses, about camera, about everything. Where in today's world you turn on the iPhone and the iPhone makes you look fantastic, like yeah. it really is an insane piece of gear, and that's just a prosumer. You know, it's a phone; it's not a camera. Yeah. So can you imagine? You know, all these other cameras that now literally you turn on—they've got fifteen lat, sta- you know, stops of latitude and all this kind of stuff. Where now, you know, you just know more because you had to go through it a little bit, dif- a little bit harder than before. You know, it's kind of like the guy who drives a car and the guy who used to, you know, drive the horse buggy.
0: Yeah, ex- well, <laughs> you know, exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. But there's something, there's something valid too. And I I try not to sound like an old fucking 40-year-old, but mm-hmm. there's there's something valid in uh, teaching because I think yes. with, there's, with the instant gratification and with a lot of the shit that is presented to people online, which is like, here's how you do it and here's the correct way and here's all that stuff. I find that uh you end up in this weird loop of doing what everybody is doing and so like -hmm. like if you're just following these tutorials and you're just playing this game you get stuck in this loop and you start to wonder like why does my work not feel like my own why do i not have my own sense of style and what is all this sort of shit and without getting too deep off in a tirade um i just did a shoot last week um And I did a shoot where I was just hired as a lighting director and it's been a long time since I've done that. And I did it for my girl who's a fashion photographer and she had me come in she did a big fucking shoot. Mm -hmm. And she's like, hey, will you light direct this? And I was like, yeah, I haven't done this in a fucking while. This would be really cool. And she wanted to do a old 1950s uh, Hollywood set, two models on a Hollywood set. And she's like, can we use vintage lights? Can we go back and do all that? And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. So we dug in deep and we found like old Max Brutes and old pan lights and old uh, tungsten units. Really cool mm-hmm. shit. And I had it all there. And it's the first time in probably four years that I, I literally pulled out and blew dust off of my light meter. I was about to say you had to bust out the light yeah, meter, didn't you? Dude. And I was like, okay. And I, I just looked at the light meter, refreshed myself on it. And then I did a day of testing and I brought a Gaffer in who had just specifically been doing digital uh, and monitor work and monitors suck. I don't care Mm -hmm. how you fucking deal with it. They always suck. And so he's there and he's like, how do I do this? I go, dude, it's totally cool. I'll show you how to use a light meter. I showed him how to use a light meter. And because of that light meter, because of our tests, not only were we able to dial in everything perfectly, but, and I tried to explain this to the producer because the producer's like, why do you need a light meter? Like, and the producer (laughs) being a producer is like, I'm not going to pay for any of that. It's like, of course you're not, you fucking asshole. But, uh, watch what we can do with this. And so they watched through the course of the day while they were shooting. We were able to go to the three sets uh, further along the line and literally light those sets perfectly because I knew what the keys were supposed to be. I knew what the edge lights were supposed to Mm -hmm. be. And I sent the gaffer off with the fucking light meter and then I show up and I go, everything's set. Good, roll, roll, roll. So we got probably, I'd say we got six more setups that day because we used light meters for the fucking Mm -hmm. process. And the young guy that was working with me is like, I'm always going to use a light meter now. And I'm like, dude, it's it's the easiest thing in the world to do. You can use it right. in conjunction with the monitor, but then you're not a slave to the DIT. Because the DIT mm-hmm. game of like, your fucking whites aren't right, your fucking blacks are too, and uh, this is what it's going to look like with the fucking LUT on it. And then when you're trying to light with that shit, you're like, what the fuck am I lighting to? I'm lighting to this flat fucking image that you guys say you're just going to grade later in post, and it's just going to look graded in post. Why don't I just do it here? With light mirrors mm-hmm. and all the shit, so anyway, I'm on a rant and a rage, but it's essentially uh, because there's something valuable about taking these techniques that have always existed in the language of cinema and yeah, and how it works, and they still are relevant today, even though you have YouTube and cell phones.
1: And Absolutely, things. I mean, go back, like you always try to learn, uh, you know, edu- look, you go back and watch movies from the 20s, the mm-hmm. 30s, the mm-hmm. 40s, mm-hmm. 50s, and throughout generations, you don't just watch. The latest films to understand cinema you have to understand all the techniques you have to understand all and that's what makes good filmmakers you, i mean any filmmaker who's at the top of their game i promise you has done a lot of research has done a lot of studying have educated themselves on the process so 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 many times uh i mean you think chris nolan doesn't know everything about you know historically uh, you know cinema do you think David Fincher hasn't seen a million freaking movies and commercials and music videos and analyzed angles and lights? and, and Of course they have, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you would take it to another place, Kubrick, I mean, he literally would spend eight years analyzing something before he'd <laughs> make a movie, <laughs> you know, so it's, but yeah, everyone listening, please educate yourself as much as humanly possible about the process. And, and don't be afraid of going back to the older ways of doing things with the newer technology. And if you can combine the old and the new, then you become really, really powerful
0: exactly and don't just buy something because the manufacturer tells you that that's the sexy fucking thing that you're supposed to use in the marketplace right?
1: because aren't we all supposed to be shooting 8k now I mean everyone needs to shoot 8k right or for, is it 17k now is it 35k I don't know but we all should be shooting the largest k humanly possible because as you know that's what makes a good movie is the k right. not the story not the actors not the directing not the lighting
0: it's the k and it's not it <laughs> Cause I know you go to NAB and you speak at NAB and you've done a bunch of that. And I, I wasn't there this year. Cause I was just like, I, there's no fucking reason for me to go. But right. the year before I was there and they said they had like, a, I think it was a Sony booth or Panasonic booth and they had some AK stitched together fucking thing. And I was talking to the rep and he's like, what do you think? And I go, why, why the fuck do we need this stupid thing? And he's like, well, you know, it's the next best thing. And I go, this is just so that you assholes can sell new monitors to us. That's essentially what this is. The audience, uh, new monitors,
1: done. new cameras because at a certain point, you just can't. Uh, people, uh, listen, uh, listeners, right now, you have to understand that cinema basically cameras did not change for probably 60 years, yeah, to 80 years, like, like 60 years. I'm gonna say 60 years. Cameras were pretty on, on a technical standpoint, it was still emulsion running through a camera, yeah, there were some bells and whistle changes. There was some uh, advancements in lenses, but generally lenses, you know, there wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like something revolutionary. There's a few things here and there, but generally speaking, things didn't change, and the process of making movies didn't change, like the workflow. It yes. was this, 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 and that way wh- that happened. That stayed for almost a hundred years, and then all of a sudden, now the cameras are changing weekly. Uh, there's new monitors. There's new cameras. Uh, glass is changing to a certain extent but glass is kind of just like stay just like you know they're just updating it and changing it there's really not much you can do just it's i could cover more of the sensor basically is the big thing they're doing right um but it's a non-stop growth so for the company's standpoint you have to understand that they're going to keep pushing technically the, the, the image but at a certain point we're getting to the point where our eye can't tell the difference like we're now getting to that point where like can we shoot 20k? Probably in the next five years, we're going to be shooting 20k. You know, the red will come out with something that says 20k on it, or some stupid thing like that. <clears throat> will we want to shoot that? Uh, why? For what? Like purpose? why? So you can so you can go in and get your coverage off the one shot and just jump into the guy's eyeball. Like I mean, it yeah. doesn't really. I mean, if you look, if you're shooting wildlife photography, my God, man, shoot it in 8k. Sure, go for it. Sure, it makes perfect sense. That's what you want. With that kind of technology, that makes absolute sense. You're gonna go shoot *March of the Penguins* two. Shoot that thing in eight or ten k. <laughs> but if you're shooting a hundred thousand dollar independent film, yeah, you don't need eight k, which is a perfect segue to the film that I just made that I shot um, on a pocket camera, 1080p, uh-huh. and I did it to just shut, just shut everyone up. Because it's, look, I personally think it looks stunning. And I just had it projected at the Chinese theater the other day. And the first time I'd seen it projected in like a real theater. Cool. And I was, my mouth was on the floor. I was like, I can't believe this 1080p image off of, off of a small sensor. It's a super 16 sensor. So it's not a big sensor. Looked stunning, stunning up on the big screen. And I'm like, oh, God. And, and by the way, I did do re- recomposition on it i did do zoom ins on it on the 1080p file and it still looked good because nobody knew the difference of it because i could do things in resolve to kind of you know tighten it up i didn't go in like you know 200 but i still repoed a bit yeah yeah it's just all about the story guys
0: it's ultimately and this is this is your ego and desire movie right is yeah,
1: that, it's on the corner of ego and desire. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks cool, man. But the premise of that, I didn't get. I only got to see the trailer because I didn't have enough time since you sent me the email. Um, mm-hmm. But the premise is uh, three filmmakers that head out to Sundance, hunting for this producer that's supposedly going to buy their uh, their film, right? Their indie film. Yes.
1: It's basically, this is Spinal Tap for independent filmmakers. And then you shot
0: shot it all at Sundance while Sundance was happening,
1: We shot the entire thing in four days, 36 hours of actual production time. We (laughs) kind of did the math. Shot the whole movie during that time. And uh, we basically ran around guerrilla style and stole everything at Sundance. Because my my feeling was that if we're going to go to Sundance with a, a camera package, and everyone has cameras there. No one's really going to notice us. And no one's going to believe that we're shooting a feature film. Like, that's that's (laughs) insanity. Why would anyone go and shoot a feature film at the Sundance Film Festival while it's going on? Like, that's just... That's horrible. That's crazy. Genius. So, I... that's what I thought I was like well maybe we can get away with it when I got there I realized I got to brought an Alexa package and no one would have even looked at me twice (laughs) I mean seriously no one would have looked at me twice if I brought an Alexa package but still we were able to move a lot quicker because we had this small little package which is basically just me my DP and my sound guy and the actors that was who we ran around with basically Mm. and we just literally just ran around and shot stuff and we had all this amazing production value because it's Sundance so we have A cast of thousands. Um, We have beautiful vistas. We have snow coming down. There's a scene in the movie where I literally, uh, it looks like we shut down Main Street. Like it literally looks like we blocked off Main Street because it was just me, my DP, and my actress walking down the middle of the street right in front of the Egyptian theater doing a scene there. (laughs) And it's at night and it's snowing. And all the lights are on, so it's twinkling in the background. And we shot it all on a little pocket camera, man. And it looks—it's honestly one of the most beautiful things I've ever shot. Like it's—it's—I'm it's, so proud of that movie. Awesome. And it's a, it's a ridiculous—it's—it's uh, a—it's every stupid thing I've ever done, or I've heard other filmmakers do, is in this movie. So the producer of the, there's the actress, the actor, uh, the actor, the producer, and the actor uh, all come in, and those are the three filmmakers. Uh, the director is a female because I had never seen a female director in a movie about making movies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and this is arguably not a movie about making movies. This is a movie about selling a movie, which I've never seen either because that's not the sexy part of making movies. But <laughs> the way I did it, it was much more entertaining. And they, um, the producer like steals $100,000 from his mom's retirement account to go shoot this movie because this is the one that's going to need the lottery ticket, we're going to get sold, and it's all done. And and if I may, can I give you the pitch for the movie in the movie. Sure, yes. It is um, Shape of Water meets E.T. with Transformers drizzled on top. Now, we shot it in black and white. Some of the (laughs) frames are upside down. Some of it's shot in slow-mo, but we really wanted this Truffaut new wave vibe, but we really just want to be in the Criterion Collection.
0: (laughs) 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 Ah, So there's no egos involved at all in this film.
1: No, it is the most... (laughs) And actually, the name of the movie... Cause it's so pretentious, I've literally blocked it out of my head. It's something Persephone's revenge, <laughs> or something like that. The search of Persephone's soul. I mean, it's just like it's so Persephone is in there somehow. I don't know. Remember that much? That's <laughs> how. this is I don't remember the name of the movie inside of my own movie because it's so pretentious <laughs> that I I've, my mind blocks it out. It's hilarious. So it's all the craziness and and you know egos everywhere and. You know, hey, I'm gonna go to Sundance for 24 hours. That's literally what they decide to do. They're gonna go for 24 hours to go find this producer that they met at the Uptown Downtown Film Festival, which yeah. doesn't exist. No. <laughs> and and they and the guy's like, hey, if you're ever at Sundance, look me up. But in their mind, we've been invited to Sundance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so cool, dude. So. It's obvious and as I go through your work it's really obvious that you've been very influenced by the 90s indie guys like Huge like Robert Rodriguez I'm sure you read Rebel mm-hmm. Without a Crew or Rebel Without No I
1: I, I I I'm I'm three probably three levels away from stalking uh, <laughs> of, uh of Robert uh, when I was younger I was you know I even you know in my book I actually um I actually told the whole story of how I called him Oh and I and I got through Oh but I didn't get to speak to Robert. But I literally, I was like, I was at, I was at Full Sail, and because because I mean, El Mariachi came out while I was in the movie, I was at the video store. I actually have two original El Mariachi posters, oh, cool. which I have to put. I have to, I have to put one up. I have to. I, have, I don't know why I haven't put it up, but um, from the video store days. So I uh, I decided to call him from this phone, this rogue phone at Full Sail that you could call long distance. Remember when that was a thing. <laughs> and um so I could call long distance from it. And you by the way, you can call international. I abused that phone like it was nobody's business. <laughs> oh my god, they must have had a bill before they locked that down, but I used it like crazy. So I decided to call LA and I was like I called up Columbia Pictures. Like this is exactly what I did. I called up Columbia Pictures. It's simpler <laughs> it was simpler times guys. Don't try this at now. It was much simpler times. <laughs> I called up Columbia Pictures because he had a deal there. I knew he had a deal there, and he was working on Desperado, I think, at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I called him I'm like, and I couldn't. The operator's like, "Hello, Columbia Pictures." I'm like, "Robert Rodriguez's office, please." And he's just like, "Please hold." I'm like, "Get the get the fuck out!" No, no. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the phone starts ringing, and I'm like, "Oh my god, it's Robert!" Oh I'm like, "That's going to be Robert." And then his answering machine picks up, and it's Robert. <laughs> It's Robert. Like, hey, man, it's Robert. I'm not in at the office right now, but if you because Robert was like you know small potatoes at that point. Yeah, yeah. You know he was he was you know, he was just coming up. He was a you know he's a young guy. He was 25. I think 24. Uh huh. And I was like I'm only like three or four years be- uh, behind him. And then I just go off on this rant like, <laughs> oh my god, Robert, this this. If you ever need an intern, I like it was like this psychotic, stalky kind of <laughs> thing. And then I hung up, and of course I never heard from Robert. Uh, he probably called up like, please don't, don't, don't send phone calls in like that again. Please screen my calls. I don't understand. So, um, but yes, I, I studied Robert. Uh, I studied all those guys. Robert, John Singleton, uh, rest in peace, John. Um, uh, Spike Lee with uh, She's Got to Have It. I mean, I was raised in that time. You know, Clerks and Slacker and all those movies that were being made during the '90s. That's my generation. That's the, that's the generation that I came up with. And it was a it was amazing time for film. I mean, it was such a remarkable and transformative time for film. I mean, wasn't it like every week or every month there was a new lottery ticket story. Like exactly. every exact wasn't it? Like every month you would hear this director wants Sundance and now he's making exactly. the next big thing
0: all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean no one really wants to talk about it now for good reason but i mean that's that's weinstein so that was all that was all harvey that was all harvey those dudes just out there shopping and buying all the new talent man and everybody that we look at now from that time period uh that is the god like the godfathers of of uh independent independent film all come from Mm -hmm. the the weinstein dudes so the
1: miramax the miramax camp a lot of them came in through miramax I mean, even though Reservoir came in, um, Reservoir came in from another company, you know, Mariachi came in through something else, but the Weinsteins uh, had so much like clerks and, you know, and there's so many films that they brought up and if they didn't intro them, they definitely got them on their second or third film, Yeah, you know, and, and, and brought them in, you know, giving, you know, arguably still Kevin Smith's best movie, in my opinion, is Chasing Amy mm-hmm. and they basically gave him a hundred thousand dollars. I think it was or $200,000, I'm gonna go make a movie.
0: It's crazy. Like,
1: it's insane, you know, and with a young Ben Affleck who, like, no one cared craps about, you know? It was like, Ben owes his entire career to Kevin Smith. I don't care what anyone
0: says. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, he was the bomb. (laughs) He was the bomb and phantoms, as they say.
1: (laughs) When I actually, when I saw, when I, this is when I saw um, Ben at a a place I was at once. I don't know if you know about my olive oil days. No. Okay, that's another conversation for another day, but, um... (laughs) I had uh, I, I owned a gourmet shop and I did uh, farmer's markets for about three years. Oh, cool. Uh, and one of those farmer's markets was the Pacific Palisades where I saw Ben and Jen every week. They were customers of mine. And then one day Ben walked by and I go, Ben, you were the bomb in Phantoms. He's like, yeah, man, thanks, man. He just kept walking.
0: <laughs> he walks out he's like, fucking asshole. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I hear that every time I get gas put in my fucking car. <laughs> 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 Uh, that's crazy, man. Uh, that's a
1: whole other, that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast, my friend.
0: Oh, uh, geez. Uh, uh, okay. So this is a good segue because as young filmmakers that when we were coming up, like you said, there were all these lottery winners. You see these guys doing this and you're, mm-hmm. you're, and I was in the same boat where you're just sort of looking for your opportunity. You're, you're teaching yourself, you're learning things, you're putting yourself in the right scenario and you're finding, uh, you're trying to find people that are going to help you make a movie and help you finance a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that you learn very young, and unfortunately you learn it through bad experiences, is that there are a lot of dangerous sort of folks that are out there looking for young people to either take advantage of young people or uh, they claim to be movie producers or they claim- Shocking. I've never heard of this. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah, it's it shocking. <laughs> uh, and so when you sent me your book, I, I read through a bit of it. Uh, I had a very similar experience, not at your level, but a very similar experience that I backed (laughs) out of very early on. You're smarter
1: than I was, sir. <laughs> Jesus, dude.
0: It's just, and I think it's ultimately just because I'm a Boston kid and I'm very cynical. So It's a point where I'm like... You're,
1: you're a little bit more street smarts than this Florida boy <laughs> that did, had no idea what the hell was going on.
0: You call it street, stars, uh, street smarts. My girlfriend would call it just cynical prick. But yeah, one way or the other. it's
1: Fairly, it's called it's, it's, potato potato, yeah. Whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it is
0: what it is. Um, but let's talk about your new book. It's called Shooting for the Mob. Explain to the listeners what this is about.
1: Shooting for the Mob is, uh, I think the best way is for me to actually just read the back cover, because it's it's just the best way for me to explain what the book is. It's quick. A bipolar gangster, a naive young film director, and Batman, What Could Go Wrong? Alex Ferrari is a first-time film director who just got hired to direct a $20 million feature film. The only problem is the film is about Jimmy, an egomaniacal gangster who wants the film to be about his life in the mob. From the backwater towns of Louisiana to the Hollywood Hills, Alex is taken on a crazy misadventure through the world of the mafia and Hollywood. Huge movie stars, billion-dollar producers, studio heads, and of course, a few gangsters populate this unbelievable journey down the rabbit hole of chasing your dream. Would you sell your soul to the devil to make your dream come true? By the way, did we mention that this story is based on true events? No, seriously, it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's break it down here a little bit. So <laughs> uh, you meet you meet this fucking gangster who wants to make a movie, and he seduces yes. you into into directing it. Essentially, right?
1: Basically, basically, he saw some talent in me. Um, it was uh, I was connected to him through a uh, associate. Uh, I can't call him a friend because he was a complete prick mm-hmm. um, that brought me into this thing and they kept me in this thing for his own selfish reasons. But uh, I, I I, delved into that in the book. But I met this guy. I was doing like a color session in uh, for a commercial I'd shot at a post house. And he's like, hey, this guy wants to meet you. He's in, he's at the bar at the post when, you know, post houses had bars and stuff <laughs> um, back in the day. And um, I walked in and I saw him and and he's like, hey, I, saw you. I saw your, I saw your, your stuff, kid. It's, it's a pretty good. And then he just starts talking to me, and I'm like, and he's as stereotypical as an Italian gangster could be, you know, gold chain, silk shirt, uh, cigar. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's something straight out of Central Casting of a Scorsese film. And I'm still like, ah, whatever, you know. This, I've heard. I mean, even at that point, I'd already been through a lot of those kind of meetings. Like, but it just didn't make sense. Like, why is this guy going to give a kid no feature film experience a twenty million dollar movie? But. He was, he was able to seduce me in a way that <clears throat> that made sense to me. He's like, look, I wanna I wanna hire you to direct this thing. We're gonna go shoot a trailer for for it. I want you to rewrite the script. And here's the script. And I read the script. The script was good. It's a good story. It was a really great story. And I told him, sure, I'll rewrite the script. That's no problem. I had never rewritten a script in my life, but I'm like, sure, sure, I'll do it. No problem. <laughs> and uh, then we shot a trailer for it where you know started to become real. And uh, you know, it was probably you know, with all the bells and whistles, it was probably a 20, $200, dollars trailer, you know, but it didn't cost that much because we pulled favors left and right. We shot all 35. Uh, and uh, you know, fluent actors from LA. It was a it was a great experience. I was like, I was living the life. I'm like, this has to be my lottery ticket, right? This is what I've been reading about for the last five or six years. Like this this has to be it. Yeah. And um slowly but surely I started seeing his uh his true colors come out. And by the time I realized what had happened, I was already in the web and I couldn't get out. And uh, it's kind of like Brasco, man. Once you're in, you're in. It's really difficult to get out. And uh, and then I was just, I was in that situation for a year, uh, about a year of my life. Uh, and during that year, <clears throat> not only did we set up our production offices in a racetrack, um, <laughs> a dilapidated racetrack from the 60s. Oh my god. Where you can actually smell the cancer coming off the walls. Uh we I was Hollywood took this guy seriously and I was flown out to LA and I met billion dollar producers, huge movie stars. I actually met Batman, one of the actors who played Batman, uh which is a whole chapter alone. And it was I mean it was it was enough of a carrot that, I, that kept getting dangled in front of me, that it made sense to me to keep putting up with this BS. Keep getting, you know, put up with the verbal abuse, the threats on a daily basis, because he was bipolar, so you never knew. He was Joe Pesci. But basically, he's Joe Pesci from Goodfellas, is who I went to work with every day, because some days he's the funniest, greatest, coolest guy to hang out with. He's telling stories. Rah, 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 rah. And other days, he just would fucking go off. He would just go off and, and threaten people and constantly bark and, And to a kid who really didn't understand what was going on in life, that was pretty intimidating. And by the way, I wasn't the only one intimidated. He had an entire crew of people, film professionals, who were terrified of him. People who had worked on huge Hollywood movies that were terrified. And and he kept them locked down for months, Mm. even without pay, Mm. in the threat of their lives and their families' lives and all this kind of craziness. So... It was an experience to say the least, my friend. But I, I, I decided uh, in 2017, late 2017, to make to write the book. Finally, it took me a long time to even come up with the the courage to do so, and it was uh, by the co- coaching of um, or or the, the hounding of my cinematographer on that project, who we will now refer to as Boris. Uh, he is <laughs> Boris in the book. He's a very central character in the book. He kept pounding. me. He's like, you got to write the screenplay. I'm like, I'm not going to write the screenplay. Who's going to, I'm like, am not going to go chase money? I, I need like two or three million bucks to make this movie properly. I, you know, I got to go chase a movie about a You know, it's a movie about a gangster with a young filmmaker like there's No, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Right. And he's like, well, write the book. I'm like, God damn it. And I did. And it was the most painful thing I've ever done in my life. I was literally crying while I wrote s- chapters. I would skip chapters because I knew where I emotionally had to go to. Yeah. It's like going back to the darkest time of your life and sitting there for about a year. It's not, It was it was brutal. It was a brutal experience. But at the end of the day, I was um, much lighter, much better. A weight was lifted off of me, a weight that I didn't know I was carrying. Yeah. And only after more self-analysis that I realized that that one that one experience which was a fairly you know large experience but one experience tainted the way i looked at my entire career for the rest of my life to the point where i didn't make my first feature till i was 40 where my my conscious mind was constantly you know you know i'm going to be tarantino i'm going to be robert rodriguez i'm going to go make my feature my subconscious mind was was sabotaging me every step of the way by surrounding myself with people that we're never really going to be able to get me to where i need to be i would throw obstacles in front of myself i would make excuses up constantly to protect myself from from the possible pain because the association between making a feature and that jimmy experience were connected so hmm. so 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 uh intensely that uh, i didn't even realize i dude i seriously didn't even realize what was going on until within the last year i realized like oh my god this is what's literally taken me so long because i had the i had the chops to make a feature film when i was 30. yeah like comfort comfortably i could have done it you know i could have done i mean i'll make a better movie now um but i i could have easily shot a movie at that stage in my life and the technology was around to do it but i just i was just scared i was scared to death of, of going back to that place and Only after, again, deep self-analysis and also a lot of research and a lot of reading on neuroscience do I realize now that your brain is not built for your happiness. It is not built to make you happy at all. It is built to protect you. It is built to keep you alive, to survive. That's why when you look at things generally, you look at the negative of things. It's not a default to go to the positive of things. Uh, You want to stay in your comfort zone. That's why changing your habits, going to work out, uh, You know, it's so difficult. Writing is so difficult because if it's not part of your habit and you haven't forced yourself into that, into a comfort zone, your body and your mind, excuse me, your mind is trying to protect you because Mm -hmm. it likes predictive, it likes to be an environment that's predictable. Because if it's not predictable, uh, the tiger can eat you. Mm -hmm. That's basically where it's coming from. So, on a creative standpoint and where we're at, you know, I, I work with filmmakers all the time and I coach a lot of filmmakers and uh, I do consultings for companies and for and for uh, independent filmmakers, and I always look at them and I just analyze where they're at. And because I've gone through it, and I'm still going through it. I'm still changing. I'm still doing things. You know, it took me, you know, it took me a long time to before I finally got serious about my health, and and before I I lost. I just recently lost forty pounds over the last six months, and it's because I changed my story in my mind. I changed my habits. I changed. Where now to the point is I I don't n- like not working out I don't like not eating well, it's now become that's my new comfort zone. So the gotcha. key the, the key to all of this is to push you out of where you're currently at and create a new set of a new mindset a new construct that this is the new normal. So I, I, I and on on a side note and I'm ranting a little bit so it's stop good. me if it's you needed to. Good. Go. Um, I actually started taking cold showers <laughs> instead of warm showers. I know Mike's looking at me like, for everyone listening, he just looked at me like, oh. Like everyone I say that to has the exact same, when I say, listen, everyone, listen, listen closely. I take cold showers. (laughs) Everyone's ass just puckered a little bit. Right. Now, why is that? Because that is so far out of your comfort zone that your mind just, there's a physical reaction to the words of me saying it because it's such an extreme stress on your body because we've all gotten into a shower and the hot water's not on and you're like, oh geez, it, like it really shocks you. So your mind instantly goes to, no, we're not doing that. But if, you're forced, if you force yourself to do it and you start going through that process, you're now stressing your body and you're now, like now cold showers are my new norm. They are like warm shower, I take a warm shower, it's kind of weird.
0: To me, wow. And
1: the reason why I take cold showers is there's a, and there's multiple health reasons for it. It boosts your immune system. It, you know, it keeps you less. And you know, when I work out it, it, your, your rehabilitation is faster. Your recoup is time is faster. I mean, if you look at athletes, you've seen them take ice baths. This is the same concept. It just, it changes so many things in your physiology. Uh, you think clearer. you wake up, it's the best cup of coffee you'll ever have in your entire life it wakes you up and it, 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 it there's a million reasons why I started doing it but i use it as an example of what you need to do in order to succeed in life and in the business where you need to constantly push yourself and stress yourself in places where you are not comfortable because if you're comfortable that's where it becomes that's where you won't grow you only grow when you are in an uncomfortable position when you're in a place of of uncertainty Mm. on a place where you don't know where things are going to go so my first feature film i was so pissed off by the time i decided to make my first feature film that i had just been on another project another big project that fell through again because of people being idiots or asses and i'm like i'm 40 man i can't do this anymore i just can't do this anymore so i said screw it i'm gonna go make a movie and within 30 days i was shooting a feature film with a wonderful actress, Jill uh, Michelle Milian, who was a, a friend of mine, she was a stand-up comedian. And I go, call all your friends. And the, and she called all her friends who were all like insane improv actors. And we did a scriptment and we got it together and we shot the whole damn thing. We crowdfunded it so it was black, it was I was in the black while I was shooting the damn thing. And I would just and then on top of all of that, if that wasn't enough to shoot a movie in eight days which I had never done before. Mm-hmm. In theory, I felt that I had more than enough chops to do it, but I needed to prove to myself that I could do it. Again, getting out of that comfort zone of, and the idea, the mindset that you're not a feature director yet. You've never done it. Right. You intellectually can say, well, I have the skills. I have the chops. I've finished, I mean, literally finished 60 features as a colorist, post-supervisor. Uh, you know, I've shot second unit. I've done all this kind of stuff, but I had never done my own. So once I broke through that mindset and I said, I'm going to do it, but not only did I shoot this movie, I also DP'd it myself. I have never DP'd anything really in my life. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'm going to push myself even more, and I'm going to DP the whole damn thing myself. And I was like, I'm a colorist. I've been a colorist for 12 years. I feel that if I can shoot the damn thing down the middle, I'll make it look good. I know I'll make it look better than a thousand films that have come through my door that were shot horribly that I've made look really good. So I know I can do a good job, and I did. It, It shot... Acceptably, it, I've, I, it's so I always look at it, and I don't even call myself the director of photography. I think I, I said lighting by or, you know, <laughs> cinematography by. I, I was really careful not to use, uh, you know, I'm not a cinematographer. I choose. Yeah, people try to hire me to be a cinematographer of that movie. I'm like, no, you do not want me as a <laughs> cinematographer. I don't want to do that. It's not what I do. Yeah, yeah. But I pushed my. But I pushed myself past that mindset, and if you're able to create new. Habits, new things that push you out of your out of your own comfort zone. That is where the go- That's where the gold is. That's that's where the the magic is. And uh, there's two quotes I always I always love saying to people. One is the the treasure that you seek is in the cave that you're afraid to walk into, which is Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. which is so so true. And the other one is like arguably one of my favorite quotes of all time by Robin uh, Robin Shroma, who says most people die at 20 and buried at 90.
0: Fascinating.
1: Isn't that amazing? Because most people don't follow their dreams. Most people just fall into their societal norms or where they were raised or how, you know, all that kind of programming that they have. Mm -hmm. And they just fall into that routine and they're just afraid of writing the screenplay. They're afraid of making the movie. They're afraid of writing that novel. They're afraid of opening their own business because they're afraid of the money not being there or whatever reasons. And they die they literally die at 20. When they get out of college, they're dead already. Yeah. And then and then when they're 90 and on their deathbed they're like I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. And you know, after a lot of a lot of research, I've probably read probably 20, 30 books on neuroscience and the mind. i it's, it's one of my hobbies. It's a fascinating how why we think, how we think. It's part of why I do coaching and things like that trying to help people. So I educate myself on that on that field and you have to understand that the first seven years of your life is where all the programming of basically of your your operating system is created in the first seven years of your life. You come in as a clean hard drive. Sure. There might be some things in there. Like there's innate talent. There's certain inclinations and stuff in the hard drive, but in the hardware, let's call it in the hardware, there's some sort of inclinations in the, in the fat from the factory. Sure. A little bit. Sure. But the programming, the software is built in the first seven years of your life. And it's so true. Like, who you're born to, what kind of parents you are, what kind of environment you're in, what kind of societal norms are you in? Are you Catholic? Are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Uh, you know, are you non-religious? Uh, are you rich? Are you poor? That's why rich people stay rich and poor people stay poor. Is a great comment because, you know, they're idiots, and I know you've met them—moronic people who are rich—and you're just like, how? Have why are these people well off? Like they're, they're just morons. Yeah. <laughs> but they're just morons, but they were surrounded by wealth. They were surrounded by the habits of wealth. They were surrounded by people who are wealthy, and they pick up all these subtle cues of programming that innately they know what to do. They know how to talk to people. They know how to make do basic business things that take their, their mindsets in a different place than. The poor person who's raised by poor, who's struggling, you've got to work. Like, I don't know if you were this way, probably. Like, you've got to work hard for your money. Sure. Yeah. You've got to, that working hard for your money is what it is. You've got to put a good, hard work day, a, a, a day of work in to get that paycheck, right?
0: Yep. Yep.
1: And then with that mindset, that's exactly what you will do for the rest of your life. You will work hard all day for that paycheck and you will never get to that next place. Whereas, if you start working smarter, start, Understanding about investments, understanding about building companies, understanding about um, uh, revenue streams and recurring revenue. That's why people buy houses and rent them because they're not working, but money's coming in. Yeah. See the difference? You see yeah. how it is? It, so I, I, I'm I, I've gone on a large rant,
0: dude. Here. It's all good stuff. No, it's all good stuff. It's all so good stuff.
1: all so th- so that mindset is where a lot of this stuff happens. So for me, I've literally had to break all through all of that stuff, and and I've started to really break myself down like okay what are my beliefs about money what are my beliefs about love what are my beliefs about my own intellectual capacity you know all this kind of stuff where look dude it took me forever to realize that I'm I'm not a dumb dude like I was put in the I was putting I was put in the special reading group mm-hmm. in first grade mm-hmm. I'll never forget it And they called it like the slow fucking group or something like that. It was like so, nothing like happens today. Like no one would ever do that today. (laughs)
0: It's not very politically correct,
1: yeah. But the point is like the the slower group or whatever it was. But from that moment on, the programming in my software stated, oh, you're not that fat. You're not that smart.
0: Yes. Yes. You're
1: just, you're okay. You don't like to read books. Mm. Oh, that's what it is. So the combination of that mixed with I'm a visual and audio learner more so than I am a visual a, a reading kind of person. I learn much more by watching and by listening, you know. To the point where now I read two to three books a week, and I average about fifty to seventy hours of audiobooks every week, mm-hmm. um, all the time. In addition to and, I, and there's tips on how I do it so quickly and all that kind of stuff. But I consume. Uh, a lot of information, and to the point where now I'm a, I'm an author, I'm a published author, so I had to like literally break through all of that to finally get to the point. I'm like I'm I'm not only am I, you know, smart in my own way and capable in my own way, but I'm also an author. I was able to sit down and write a book yeah. that people seem to like and people are enjoying. So, but that's all mindset. And and there's look, man, there's people I know you know them who never break free. Mm-hmm. In this entire lifetime, they will not break free of these these chains, these these norms, whether it be living up to mommy and daddy, whether li- living up to their religion, whether living up to their societal norms. You know, being a filmmaker is not anything, like nobody in my family is a filmmaker.
0: Yeah, no. You know,
1: like everyone looked at me, was like, you're, what? Like, what? And it was also, now it's a lot cooler to be a filmmaker. Like, that's a thing. When we were coming up, no, it's like not not you're not, you're not, not gonna
0: what do you, who do you know in Hollywood? You're not gonna make any money. You know what I mean?
1: Correct. You can't make a living. What the fuck? This. You, yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm now 25 years in. You know, doing this uh, for a living. You know, and and following my dream and doing what I love to do, and has it been peaches and cream the entire time? Absolutely not, as my book <laughs> purely states. And that's just one. That's the main story. There's many other ones that I had throughout. You know, uh, throughout my career, but if you're able to break through that mindset and and able to change the programming uh, and evolve the programming, like, look, dude, we're all computers. Our minds are all, we're all hardware, right? So would you keep the same operating system on the computer you work on on a daily basis for the next 50 years?
0: Right now,
1: probably not. You've got to upgrade your software and how do you upgrade your software? By reading. By taking online courses, by educating yourself, going to seminars, self-improvement—you know—I'm not doing Tony Robbins here, but at the end of the day, I am doing it because that's what changes the programming. Because when you read something that changes, oh, I didn't think about that. All of a sudden, it just starts going down other ways, and then those neural pathways start changing. Uh, it's kind of like grooves in a record, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: like uh, grooves in a record. And then if you're able to scratch the record that changes the things and all of a sudden you just got to create new strong neural pathways which is basically like you you walked onto a set to do a light lighting directing right Mm -hmm. you hadn't done in four years right Mm -hmm. but all of a sudden it came back to you fairly quickly and you started to like reopen it up and like oh okay this is what it feels like yeah because the neural pathways had been built that way and they been solidly it it got almost built into the hardwiring of your mind that it can come in just kind of like martial arts you know and you know, they call it physical memory or mem- muscle memory. That's what that is. It's not the muscles remembering. It's it's the mind that can tell the muscles how to do it. And if you do it a thousand times, it just gets it just in, kind of yeah. it gets burned into it, like it's, like a CD-ROM or something.
0: It's fascinating too, because like when you when you, at least for me when I unpack that stuff, or if, if someone gives a good tip, like you've had some really great tips. Mm-hmm in the show and and some of them that i'm like oh fascinating it's almost like you can smell it it's like you can almost smell it's like when you turn on an old lamp that's got dust on it and it starts to burn off a little (laughs) bit of that smoke like you just start to smell it and you're like oh fuck that could be interesting and i love i mean that's what i love about our business So, right about now seems like the perfect moment to show some love and respect to the sponsors of the show, the people that keep this show going, uh, and help me pay for all the little bullshit costs that uh, tally up when you're trying to do a podcast. And if my voice sounds a little bit different, it is because I am recording this today, and today being the 1st of July. So I've been a bit out of order with how I've been releasing these episodes because I've done so many and some I'm just trying to release them in in such an order that seems interesting to you guys. So this episode was recorded a little while ago, um, but hey, I think it's great. It's coming out today. So, so sue me. (laughs) You want this stuff to come out in order? Then uh, then uh, go on there and start donating some more loot. So that way, I can hire someone to do it in order. How's that sound? (laughs) What a bit of prick, huh? Anyway, um, so let's talk about some sponsors. First up, our good buddies over at Puget Systems. If you're in the marketplace right now for a brand new computer um, and you're looking at the prices, the ridiculous prices of the soon to be coming out new Mac Towers, they're ridiculous. The pricing on them is astronomical. Uh, And you're looking to have something that is A, affordable, B, fast, faster, fast, um, and C, something that you can actually pay off pretty quickly and start to make money on it, which is important when you start your own business, I highly suggest you build a PC. I have been editing on Puget PCs now for over three years. I've done 12KM on it. I've done Who's There on it. I've done the Dale Strong piece on it. Uh, I I cut everything on them. Um, It's awesome. It's fast. I never have any problems. I don't have any crashes. All that stuff is bullshit, guys. Um, And at this point, if you're like me, you're editing in Adobe Creative Suite anyways, um, and it works on both systems, and uh, you can now run out ProRes on a PC. So there is no reason why you shouldn't be on a PC. Um, Go to PugetSystems.com. There you can select um, a baseline system based upon the software that you're going to be using or that you do use. For instance, if you use Premiere, check off the Premiere setting. They'll suggest a system, and then they highly encourage you to interact with them and build something custom. Let them know what your budget is. They can help you decide where it's important to spend money, where it's easier to cut funds. And I going to say this because I learned this when I was hanging out with them. The newest and greatest and latest hardware isn't always the perfect solution for whatever software you're running. Um, After Effects is a prime example. After Effects prefers older pieces of hardware. Um, So it's cheaper than you think, which is really cool. And then if you're saving that kind of money on your actual machine itself, uh, you can then uh, take whatever leftover cash you've got left to go get those third party things that you really want you know, i.e. some third-party card, i.e. some sweet new keyboard or some specific keyboard, an editing keyboard, which I love. I'll plug them. I use, I think it's Logitech. They haven't been a sponsor for a while. They should be a sponsor on the show again. Um, But I use those guys and then I got my hands on some sweet color calibrated monitors um, and uh, it was still cheaper than going to buy a Mac. So... I highly suggest it if you're an editor, video editor, if you're a Photoshop person, a photographer, if you're into doing sound design or music, it's even cheaper to get a PC if you're doing music stuff because you don't need to have ridiculous graphics cards. Uh, Head on over to PugetSystems.com. They will not only help you build the system, but if you're building your own, they share their specs. So that's cool, right? So check them out. Go over to PugetSystems.com. Also, the other long-running sponsor for the show, good friends of mine over at Rule Boston Camera. So if you're a filmmaker like I am and you're desperately trying to keep your overhead costs low um, and you're dealing with clients and producers that are constantly reading the trade magazines and thinking that if they get the brand new camera on the market, it's going to make that little iPhone video mode that you're making amazing and the client's going to love it. Mm-hmm. Um, It's so difficult to actually keep up with this tech. And buying a camera these days, it's just ridiculous because within a year, within a half year, it's already outdated and they're on to the latest and greatest thing. So, Mike, how do I keep up with it? Well, go make friends with your local rental house. And I say local rental house because there's a lot of benefits of renting locally for you. Uh, One being, one major thing being, that if your equipment goes down and you happen to be renting from like an online rental place, uh, you're screwed. As opposed to working with a, a local spot like Rule Boston Camera, you can literally call those guys up on the phone while on the shoot and say to them, hey, look, for some reason, the lens is frozen to the body. For some reason, the batteries aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They will help talk you through it on the phone. And if that doesn't work, they will literally put one of their super awesome PAs in a van with a new battery and send it right to your set. Think about that. Think about being able to turn to your producer and say, isn't this cool? Because no matter what, equipment fails. I don't care how good it is. I don't care how new it is. It always fails. And it always fails at that perfect moment. Am I right? Your actress has finally found her lines, or your actor has uh, finally found his confidence on screen, and then the fucking batteries go down. Right? So I always do it. I love these guys. They have been my longest professional uh, partnership Uh, I've been working with them for about 19 years pretty crazy Um, so if you're on the east coast rule Boston cameras the way to go Um, but if you're not on the east coast I've got listeners in Australia I got listeners all over the place there are amazing rental houses local rental houses across the map hopefully I'll get a few more to sponsor the show so I can plug them directly but I suggest highly that you go down there hang out I know Rule Boston Camera does like um, workshops where they'll have uh, weekly workshops or monthly workshops where they'll teach you about the newest, latest, greatest gear. You'll be able to go in and get your hands on it. Um, so it's, I think they just had Teradek in there last week. Um, and they were playing around with a lot of the new wireless focus kits or wireless video kits. I think it's wireless video stuff. Um, don't quote me on that, but go to Rule, Rule Rule.com, Rule Boston Camera. Uh, check them out. And uh, yeah, I love those guys. Uh, our other sponsor, which we're very happy to have, they've been around for a little while now um, Quasar Science Lights. So, one of the polls that I have been doing recently is what do you guys want to do for a new episode on this show? Everybody has been saying a new episode on lighting. Take note, Quasar. New episode on lighting. And uh, so, I think I'm going to do something. I'm going to talk to these guys and see if I can get them involved. Um, but for those of you who don't know what Quasar is, uh, they make these amazing LED lights. Now this has been the biggest advancement in our field um, in the past five years. I think it's even bigger advancement than uh, the new cameras on the market are. Because with LED lighting, not only are your lights running cooler, so you don't have these hot lights on set, uh, making your extra sweat, and driving your crew crazy and burning the fingers of anybody on your light team. Um, but in these lights themselves, um, Quasar has specific lights that are rainbow. They have rainbow colored. So, like, you can get any color of the rainbow dialed into them. It's um, very saturated light, constant light, no flicker, built for cameras. I've got a few of their tubes. I've got a uh, two foot uh, QLED rainbow tube. I love it to pieces, it's amazing. Um, And it really saves me because I've been doing color work for years now and prior to the LED tech, I would have to go buy gels. And gels are expensive and gels are always disposed afterwards. They're always disposable because they're ripping, they're tearing, you have to tape them or you have to clip them to the front of a light. Uh, And no one really treats them with respect even though a fucking tiny sheet of it's like 15 bucks. So you do the math on that. Um, With this really great tech, um, especially Quasar's lights, you can dial in any of those gel colors you need. Uh, You can run it off an RGB spectrum and try to find exactly what you want. You can dial it and dim it. Uh, You can chain them together. Uh, There are effects that run through all of them. Uh, They're amazing, amazing lights. And uh, if you uh, check out a lot of the stuff that you see on Netflix these days, and if you're seeing like some really intense flickering Uh, like flickering uh, what seems to be fluorescent lights or different color cues or even music videos where you see tubes, colored tubes in the back of music videos. It's all Quasar stuff. So super excited to have them on the show. Go check them out. It's quasarscience.com. I'll put a link below Um, there on their website. They'll send you to different retailers to purchase them. Or if you want to be super slick and support the show, If you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com or if you click the link for the show in my Instagram bio at Mike or in the bio of the podcasting Instagram, so that's pod. there you'll find a link on that link. In there, you'll find a link to purchase them on Amazon using our account. So if you go through uh, that link or even if you click on the banner there and order whatever you want on Amazon, we get a kickback which is good. Helps us pay for the show. You're going to buy lights. Help us pay for the show. Why the fuck not? Right? So, yeah. And while I got you guys here, before we get back into this, like I said, this episode was probably recorded about three, four weeks ago. So there's a lot of new stuff going on. Um, Gene and I are making that move to uh, LA. So I am getting rid of a lot of equipment and a lot of stuff that I have and taking those funds to put towards our moving funds. So continuously check out at Mike Petchy on Instagram because I have uh, a bunch of really cool stuff going up there. I've been going through our inventory of stuff here at the house. I'm giving away posters from 12KM. I am giving away uh, gear and equipment that I have. I've got all sorts of stuff going there. So go follow it. The account's private because I want to know who you guys are when you follow me. Uh, go follow at Mike Peccia on Instagram. And uh, that would be cool. And uh, yeah, that's it. Let's get back into it. I think this is a great podcast. Alex is a really cool dude. Ended up being an awesome podcast. I hope you guys are enjoying it. Thanks for listening. Not only are we dealing with that on a, on a creative way, which is like, how do I... How do I take this fucking idea and how do I look at it from a different standpoint or how do I come at it from a new angle that no one else has really seen before? And and in there, if you're lucky, you find something and you have that moment of like, oh, this is fascinating and let's go down this road. And what you've been talking about is interesting because uh, it is very much both uh, flexing your muscles as a creative and learning stuff as a creative, but it's also flexing your muscles as a human being and learning how you work as a human being and how your mind's working, because our job essentially is telling stories about other human beings. And it's (laughs) fascinating how many people that are in that position that don't know about them fucking selves. And so I think there's a huge, most people don't, most most people people don't. don't, most people don't. There's a huge difference between interacting or watching something that. I don't want to use the term enlightened because that usually leads to some- Self-aware. Yeah, self-aware shit.
1: It's, it's yeah. self-awareness.
0: Yeah, and you see that and you go, oh, okay, this is really inspired by someone that is that is smelling that fucking burnt filament. You know what I mean? That they're sitting there going like, ah, oh, this is but fascinating. Look, but if you look at the directors,
1: man, like a lot of these big directors who, who we all idolize, mm-hmm. they're extremely self-aware of who they are. Yeah. Not only as an artist- but as a human being. And I'm not saying they're perfect and they don't have issues and they don't have things that they're working through, but they understand that. Uh, you know, I doubt that Kubrick was not self aware. Oh yeah. You know, I doubt that Nolan or Fincher are not self aware of who they are, not only as filmmakers, but as people. Yeah. You know, Tarantino, fairly self aware of who he is, you know, and the kind of movie he wants to make. Del Toro, like. He's the monster dude. He loves monsters. He understands that about himself and he understands the deep mythology behind it and all that kind of stuff. But I think one of the reasons why we have a lot of bad cinema today is that you've got filmmakers who are using other films as reference points for humanity. Which there is an element of that. But the ones that the films that they're idolizing or the films that they're taking from, those filmmakers didn't do that. Those filmmakers read the Great Gatsby, read, you know, nonfiction, understood the human condition, understood all of that stuff, and go deep, deep into why we do what we do. That's what good screenwriting is about. You know, it's it's not about watching a ton of movies and and then getting the dialogue from them to put in your movie. It's about going to the coffee shop and just sitting there listening to people talk. Yeah. And see the cadence of that, and see what they really do. So when you see a movie like that, you, you you feel it. But when you see a movie that's not that, you also feel it. You know that's why. You know, it's I, I always I'm a big Marvel fan. So I, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, he's a Marvel guy. I don't care. I love the Marvel movies. I'm a Marvel geek. I'm a I'm a comic book geek. And some of the, and the reasons, I think one of the reasons why those are so popular, because it's not just the visual effects, that, the spectacle. We got plenty of spectacle. Sure. It's not about spectacle at all, I think, with Marvel. I think it is about the characters, the depth of the characters. Like Tony Stark was an alcoholic who had issues. You know, Peter Parker is a kid with acne and dealing with stuff. You know, the X-Men are dealing with racism, you know, I mean, there's such deeper yeah. issues there that people, that's why, you know, a lot of the other, you know, I don't want to get to the DC Marvel conversation, but, um, but that's one of the reasons why those films resonate so much. And even the dialogue they have, they're funny and they kind of click a little bit more and they don't take themselves seriously, but do take themselves seriously. That's one of the reasons why those films are so powerful and have done so well, because if it was just spectacle, hey, listen, we've seen a lot of spectacle over on the DC side of the universe and it's not really working out real well for them. You know, so there's a reason yeah. for that.
0: Well, yeah, and then they're they're in real smart about who they're picking as the directors. I mean, actually casting John Favreau for the first fucking Iron Man was like the best decision they ever fucking made, dude.
1: Well, oh, and John is, you know, but also don't forget that was a risk. The whole thing was sure. a risk. Sure. And and Tony and and Robert Downey was a huge, huge risk. risk. They like the people had to fight to get Tony in. Oh, I mean, to, Robert, to yeah. get Robert. Oh, in. I've
0: heard the stories, man, and and the. The fascination with that, it's so so perfect, and I don't want to get too far on it, but it's so perfect how uh, Tony Stark was basically Robert Downey Jr.'s life. Because he was dealing with alcoholism on his own. Oh no no no! Of course, stuff. it's all it's he knows so who that character is. But that's also why the less than audience knows. So like when they see him, they look at him. Oh and no, they he was just perfect. You're that fucking dude with the drug problem and shit like that. Yeah. It's like yeah, that's it's, when
1: you watch less than zero and you see his performance in less than zero. You're like, that's not a performance, dude. That's him just living his life. Yeah. Dude. At that time in his at that time in his life, it's just the bottom line. He said it himself. But uh, it's fascinating, man. It's fascinating to see that. But that's it's filmmakers. You have to. One thing that Lucas always said, George Lucas says, he's like, you want to be a filmmaker? Read, man. Live life. Go out and experience the life. Experience the world. You know, you're not going to be a good filmmaker just by watching movies. It's going to help. Don't get me wrong. Sure. And it's going to definitely, you need to do that as a filmmaker. And as a screenwriter, you need to read screenplays. But you also need to read novels. You also need to go out and have adventures, experience, because that's where the marrow of what you're trying to do is going to be found man that is where the the magic is going to be found that's going to that's where it's not going to be an old story that we've seen a thousand times it's going to be a story that you're just like oh um 127 hours i had my arm stuck in a damn boulder <laughs> for 127 <laughs> hours and i had to cut my arm off to get out like that's not coming out normally you know that that's because that guy that writer, that that person went through that adventure and then wrote a book about it. I did the same thing with shooting for the mob. I didn't cut my arm off, but um, you know, <laughs> it is my it is my experience. It is my journey through filmmaking. It is a very unique story in the scope of filmmaking stories. I've never heard of that, and I've read a lot of books about the filmmaking process i think it's a great companion piece for rebel without a crew from robert because robert's is the success story mines is the (laughs) non-success or a different kind of success story like you know we both went like i always tell people i'm the least predominant filmmaker of my generation Uh, so so, (laughs) but but that's but that's where it comes from it comes from that experience like there is nobody else who has this story this is my story and nobody else could write it as no one will direct my feature of it because there will be a feature of it. one day. Nice. Um, It has to happen and I'm going to direct it and Boris is going to be the cinematographer. And then when I'm there directing a scene with both of us in it and he's lighting the scene with both of us in it, and then I think the space-time continuum will explode. But um, because no one, in in, in my understanding from the history, no one's egomaniacal enough to direct a movie about their own life. That's insane. (laughs) Who would do something like that? But yet I am throwing my hat in the ring
0: dude it's cool man it's fucking <laughs> rad uh, and, and you know it's it's nice to hear your perspective it's nice to hear um, the fact that you are digging in deep and then you are going into like how your brain works and why this happens because a lot of people could be in that same position that you were in and just go this sort of destroyed my career and this destroyed my path and
1: but I have seen understand
0: it, it you know? you,
1: but we've seen it like how many filmmakers look I know you know a lot of guys in the business man mm-hmm. how many of them are stuck Yeah, they're just stuck they're stuck in a in the same kind of vicious loop, yep. or they're not. Or they can't break free, and they're super talented. How many super talented people you know? So many that have not gotten a chance, or have not been able to break through. And you just sit there going, "Why? Why have they not broken through?" And you know, is is there a, 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 is there a moment of chance in there? Yes. Is there is there luck involved? Yes. Sure. Absolutely. There is a, a sense of luck involved. You know, Robert Rodriguez showed up with a movie that he was going to make uh, for $7,000 as a practice film that he was going to sell to the Mexican video market.
0: <laughs>
1: and all of a sudden, he's in the agents, the, the the biggest directing agent's office in Hollywood, and he blows him up. Like, that's luck. Being right place, right time, right product. Yeah. Robert shows up today with a mariachi. He's nobody. Exactly. Never be, we'll, ne- we'll never hear who he is. Kevin Smith shows up with Clerks. No one never. cares. Never. No, no one cares. No one cares. Yeah. You know, I'd argue to say if... The only one of those group of that group of the '90s, if Tarantino showed up with Reservoir, and no one had done something like that, I think he would still.
0: Yeah. Yes, for sure. I,
1: I think he would still cut through. I for think, sure. he, but he's one of the few. He's one of the few guys that would do that. You know, Boys in the Hood, shows up today. I'm not sure if it makes the same impact no. that it did in 1991 or 92. Yeah, and then when today, today is
0: all different, anyways, with Netflix and the streaming services, and then like you know.
1: It, it wouldn't. Yeah. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't hit the same way. No. And. It, so there is a sense of that right place right time. I read this fascinating book called um oh god uh the the one by Malcolm McDowell uh not Malcolm McDowell um oh god it was about outlier it's called Outliers. I uh, forgot About this. Yeah, Outliers by McDowell Mac, McDowell. Oh god, is it Malcolm Okay. Uh, he's a famous author. He's he's written like you know, he wrote um uh was the one uh, David and Goliath uh, outliers. Well, Outliers basically says that every, there are no overnight successes. He's the guy who, who coined the phrase "You need ten thousand hours."
0: Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes
1: of, course, yeah. of course. So he wrote this book called Outliers, and that book is fascinating because he just breaks down all of these just legends of of their specific fields: the Tiger Woods, the Michael Jordans, uh, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates. All of these guys, and everyone's like, "Oh, yeah, they're geniuses. They're you know they they were this that." And like, well, yes and no. And he starts breaking down even like uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller and these guys. All those kind of guys, they were born within a five-year span (laughs) where that was the time to be those guys. (laughs) Five years earlier, it doesn't work. Five years later, it's too late. They fell right in the time. So isn't it amazing that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and the guy who runs Oracle, all those guys showed up.
0: At the same time.
1: At the same time, within three, I think it was within 18 months of each other. It's crazy. All in Silicon Valley. All, and then, so, great story about Bill Gates, because everyone's like, oh, he's a genius, he's all this and that. You want to talk about luck. Not only is Bill, Bill Gates, he obviously was a very smart guy and obviously had some stuff going on and it all worked out for him. But, did you know that Bill Gates' high school was the only high school in the country that had a computer lab. No. He was the only one that had a computer lab that was connected to a major mainframe at a a university. So he had huge amounts of computing power in high school. And did you also know that he figured out a way to hack the system because you were only allowed to do like an hour a day where he was able to get in there for eight to nine hours a day programming Um. when nobody else on the planet had that opportunity. OK, so when the when when the time showed up for him to launch Microsoft, he already had 10,000 hours and an opportunity that nobody else had yes, that nobody else had
0: fascinating,
1: you know, you know, and that's but that because it's, it's about placement. It's about time. So it's about when you're born like we were born at this time in our lives. Right. So like, you know, uh, Zuckerberg was born when Facebook. I remember when Facebook was just over college. You know, in my space was all the rage. You know, but he was born at the right place at the right time, and he had the right set of skills to do what he needed to do. If Zuckerberg shows up right now in college, we don't know who he is. Yeah. There is no fit because it's too late. That window closes. You know, so like, perfect example, Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, Milius, uh, Lucas, all of those guys in the, in the film school generation That was a window of opportunity that happened at that time, that the studios opened the gates and let the inmates run the asylum, because they had no idea what to do for the box office, because nobody was going to the movies, because nobody knew what, we obviously don't know what we're doing, let's let these kids go at it. That was a small window of opportunity. The 90s, when the late 80s, early 90s, the independent movement where Soderbergh, you know, all those guys, Tarantino, Rodriguez, uh, Linkletter, all these kind of guys showed up. That was a window of opportunity. That, that was a window that all those guys showed up at the right place at the right time when the technology was there for them to do. Hmm. That's luck. That's luck. Now, fast forward another, fast forward another minute. And, um, and then you go over to 2005 and you start YouTube and you're a young guy trying to make a name for yourself and, or a young girl, and you start using YouTube, building up, and all of a sudden, you're a YouTube influencer, and boom, boom, boom. Right place, right time. Instagram, right now. If you're an influencer on Instagram, if you, if you jumped in four or five years ago, you're good. Jumping in now, a lot harder. Same thing with YouTube. Jumping in now, it's doable, much harder.
0: Yeah, much harder. Lot, yeah.
1: Lot, much harder. So there's, there are the, you, you have to understand, you have to figure out these moments and look at the time that you're in And not wish that you were in another moment or wish there's another moment. There is a moment we're all in right now. Do you think Instagram, like guys making millions of dollars on Instagram is going to last? That's not going to last, dude. In 10 years, it's going to be something else. It's going to be something else. Do you think YouTube, you know, things are going to be forever? No, it's going to morph into something else. Something else will come along. Some other opportunity will come along. Look at Netflix.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly.
1: Blockbuster, Blockbuster actually had a chance to buy them for $50 million. And they said, no, 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 no. We're good. Thank you, Netflix. We're good. Hindsight is, you know, what it is. But right. I always tell people, don't be Blockbuster. Yeah. Always see what's around the corner. And, 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 but that's the case. Netflix showed up at the right place at the right time with the right technology and the right person leading it you know all there's and there's examples upon examples of that with Steve Jobs and what he did you know his whole place where he was where was he born he was born in Berkeley you know he's born in that area right. during the 60s you know so it was like all peace and love and art and all of this kind of stuff then he happens to meet you know uh um what's the other guy who founded apple life right? oh, god his name fam- uh, um,
0: It says – oh my god Zook.
1: Zach, Zach, Zooks, I forgot the name. People yeah. are yelling it right now on the podcast. I apologize. <laughs> um, but he met this amazing technical genius. And the two of them together in the garage. And they're like, hey, I have the marketing. You've got the tech. Let's get together. By themselves, neither of them would have been able to do anything. But it just happened that this, the universe brought these two together at the right place, right time. Yeah. And it works out. So they show up today. I'm sure Steve Jobs would do some pretty cool stuff today. If he was a kid I, I I think he you know he would create something cool, but is it gonna be Apple I don't know
0: yeah it, it's such an interesting way to look at it um and then you also it's it's you also can't be depressed by that either because it is a lot of it like you're saying it is chance it is timing it is all that stuff but what I try to say on this show all the time is that if you can do that if you can somehow find the right place right time and be able to fucking be there for the pop-off, then power to you. You end up becoming a Spielberg. You end up becoming a Rodriguez or one of those dudes. But you have to understand that most, like 99% of what we do isn't that. And 99% of what we do Uh is just being in the thick of it. And you have to be able to look around and go, okay, this this is what I like about this business. I like the social element. I like the creativity of it. I like that I make a little bit of money. I can survive a little bit. But I'm not, like I'm not in it to be a Steve Jobs or someone like that. You have to be, you have to fall in love with another fucking reason. Because like if we're just sitting here waiting for that next best fucking thing, it's depressing as shit, dude.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I said it the other day on one of my podcasts, and I I released a, a quote card about it because it's so true. If you're if you're in this business for the red carpet, you are gonna live a miserable effing life here, man. Totally. Like you can't, you can't only be about the destination. You have to enjoy the process. Uh, if I can stay on brand. <laughs> the process, the journey is what you need to be in love with. You need to be in love with the day-to-day, in and out. Because if you're not, you're miserable. And that took me a long time to learn because I was always about the the end goal. I was always about getting the movie done and that's why so many filmmakers have such a depressing situation after the shoot's over and then after the movie gets released and I've actually had filmmakers in my suite as a colorist who spent three or four years on one movie and they don't know what to do if the movie finishes so they make shit up (laughs) and keep keeping the process going I'm not kidding you they keep making changes they keep moving things because they're afraid of releasing it because if they release it they got nothing left And that's not a professional. That's just that's just a a guy making a movie, you know. Professionals, boom, 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 boom. They're not precious about things, Um, and that's that. It was fascinating, but that's an illness. It's an illness that you know we filmmakers will just stay on something forever. How many guys do you know who are writing that script for five years?
0: Oh God, dude, and and
1: I mean, uh, uh, yeah, and and then just holding on,
0: (laughs) yeah, and then and then you never get to release it because it's never perfect enough, and the audience doesn't see shit. I'm constantly saying, uh, work in the public. Like actually work and test your skills out in the public. Like put things out, see how people react mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Don't be ashamed to go sit in the fucking theater and watch the movie with an audience. Like, like do that. Get it, that. That's the biggest part of all this. And honestly, it's the shit that I fucking love the most. You know, being an older brother and being the guy that would tease people and being that person mm-hmm. that would tell stories. At the table with beer and all that kind of shit. Like, that's the reason to do it. It's to have that exchange. It's to have an idea, throw an idea out, see how it, the audience reacts to that idea, and then have the ability to adjust that sort of thing and, and mm-hmm. adjust your storytelling and be in that flux, which is a lot of fun. I think everything that we've been talking about on this show, which has been fantastic, by the way. No, um, oh, thank you. But everything that we've been talking about is really just trying to stay. In the what I call in the gray, which is like you you want to find you're not black or white, you're just sitting in this gray area and the older that we get, crossing 40 and all that stuff, there hit a point for me when I at 40 sort of looked at my current situation that I was in and I'm like, I don't know how I did it, but for the past five years I've been I've been locked into something that I didn't realize that I was locked into it and I thought that that was this norm thing and, and your subconscious mind, Ends up creating these restrictions for you, and you were saying it before. Oh yeah, it's the com- yeah. it's the comforts where you're just like he's trying
1: to protect you, man. It's just trying to protect you, man. He doesn't want you to get hurt. Don't want that tiger to eat you. Exactly, that's all it's about.
0: Exactly, like hey, look, I'm just gonna go to bed early, and I have like these rhythms, and I have these methods, and this is how I interact with clients, and this is how I build things, and you have to do things my way in order for that to happen. And you just you, it starts as like very small, minute, little details, and then you start to get rewards for it. So you sit there and you go, I did really well last year. I made some good money. I did something. Pav- it's
1: Pavlov. It's Pavlov's dog. Basically. Yeah. And so then you're fucking dealing
0: <laughs> with that shit. And so it's it's a it's a fascinating thing uh, because then creatively you end up stagnant. Like I I hit yeah. a point where I was fucking stagnant. I literally had to fall on the ice to crack my fucking skull for me to yes. break that. You know, and that that was something that a- that had to happen.
1: Well that's a good way to literally and figuratively to jog your memory and jog uh, not jog your brain I mean that's
0: definitely a way to do it
1: I mean there are easier ways my friend you should have called um, but <laughs> I could have given you a few techniques that would have knocked you right out of that. But if you wanted to go through what you could, hey, who, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? Hey man. Uh,
0: hey man. It's uh it's, survival of the fittest, my friend. So
1: But is it but isn't it amazing though how we if you start to really and I hope everyone listening does does just a little asks a few questions of themselves. Yes. And just literally go, what why am I am I comfortable right now? Am I Am I unhappy? If I am unhappy, why am I unhappy? Is it because of this or because of that? Like I would work. I I had two staff jobs in my entire life as an editor, um, and got fired promptly from both of them because I just hated it. Mm-hmm. And the money. And both times the money was insane. Like I wasn't. I was making stupid money when I was 22, which I sh- it shouldn't have been making stupid money on 22 because I had no idea what I was doing. But, um, but I slowly but surely started it started i wasn't self-aware at all at that moment in my life and i would just kind of start i would just start snapping at people and i would just yes. start angry at people and i just start lashing out and everything sucked and rah, 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 rah. this guy and this guy because that's the way the body starts to react to it the mind starts to react to it because on the subconscious level the subconscious level mind is saying you're gonna stay here because it's a good paycheck but the conscious level and all these other things are going on, but i'm not happy i'm not happy this is not where i want to be and is it all about the money? Like, are we, you know, I, I was having a talk with my wife the other day and she's like, she's like, is this it? Like, is it me? It's just like, is it me just going to a job from nine to five, come home, yep, you know, do this and that, maybe take a couple vacations here and there. Uh, and and then I wake up and I'm 70. Like, is that what is that basically what this is? And I said, No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It is not. It's not at all. And I've been able, I've been very blessed and lucky to find what I love to do. Uh, and now I, I, I dedicate my entire life and career to building up of my company, to helping people, to being of service to my community. But in in addition to that, also expressing myself as an artist through my movies, through my books. Through my talks, through consulting, through other avenues, it's not all about just making movies for me anymore. It is one avenue that I still love tremendously and want to continue to do. And if Marvel calls, I will take that meeting. <laughs> but um, but it's about all these other avenues that I've been able to find joy in, and I've been doing. Like I had fr- I had friends of mine when I first started out because I. I don't know if you noticed, I do put out a, a, a decent amount of content. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so, and my friends were like, you're going to burn out, dude. You're going to burn out. I'm like, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. No, man, you can't keep this up. And I'm close to four years in and I actually am upset that I can't put more out. Like I I literally am now s- literally studying how to modify my daily routine so I can actually, you know, um, hone in. And, and, and really get as much juice out of the day as I possibly can to provide more service to my audience and provide more service uh, to my community. Because it's, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you have felt this, when you give, mm-hmm. man, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's addictive. It is addictive. And I forgot who said it. If it was, I think it was Napoleon Hill, I'm not sure. But I think it was him. But he said, like, if you want to succeed... Um, help somebody else succeed. It,
0: all right, so here, here, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in a little a little behind the scenes on my end. So you're being recorded you're being recorded. I hope. Yeah, yeah, Go of ahead. course. <laughs> so when I first heard of you, and I went on your mm-hmm. podcast, and I looked at your website and looked at your stuff, there are a lot of fucking people out there that are like, I'm here to help filmmakers, and so like I don't know how often. <laughs> In my my fucking Instagram feed, I'll have some asshole come on there and just be like, You want clients? I'll tell you about clients. And I'm just like, why the fuck aren't you working with those clients? Why are you telling me about these fucking clients? And it's it's this it's this rapid, rampant thing that's going on right now where people are just mm-hmm. they're not supplementing income. They can't make income. So like they've essentially become the film teachers from our youth that were like, I can't make in the business, so I'm gonna go fucking teach. And so Mm -hmm. when I first seen your stuff, I was concerned about that. I'm like, what's this guy and how's this thing? And I went on your show and you you and I had a really good time on the show. And then I was doing the research on you for this episode because I just, it's a a hard thing to discuss because myself, I consider myself a director first and foremost. I consider myself a creator first and foremost. And I Mm -hmm. started doing this for the same reasons that you were just saying, where I had a lot Mm -hmm. of people coming to me and asking me and I'm like, well... I'm sitting around all week. I have nothing this week, so mm-hmm. why don't I just do something and and actually learn and and open up those new pathways in my mind that we were talking about earlier? Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been meeting a lot of folks that are in, I guess, this industry that we're in, which is the this, space, the this space, sp- yeah. this, this side industry that are that are fucking they're vultures. <laughs> And I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. name names, but they're straight up fucking vultures. And that's what they're doing. And, and it's completely obvious being someone that works in this business. When you interact with them, you're like, don't give me shit. Like, you, fuck off. Like, you, 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 you don't you know hear, what you're doing. You yeah. hear it yeah. come out of their mouth and you're just like, you're fucking, you might as well be a goddamn snake oil salesman. You might as well be selling a your shit. You're a poser. Exactly. Yeah. But this has been a really good episode. And I think it's been a really good conversation because it's been nice to understand. And I think it's really your obsession with your own mind. That mm-hmm. really has shaped my opinion of you, and it's it's, been, I it's been really good, dude. And I think I appreciate it. It's nice to hear it, and I fully endorse what you're talking about, <laughs> which is Thank great. You. And I fully endorse uh, your book, and I fully endorse your stuff. And um, I'm we got to wrap this up because we've been where the fuck are we clocking in right now? Yeah, th- we're getting there
1: it's okay i mean i can keep t- i have a, g- a good 20 minutes if you'd like sir yeah. it's okay i don't look I, let's just keep going baby come on let's just
0: keep going <laughs> well, i love let's, it let's keep talking and then maybe i'll offer to some extended content but like <laughs> at this you snake oil salesman are you gonna charge for that extended content no, no dude no 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 <laughs> I'm, no, like, no. I'm messing with you. Dude. but I'm messing honestly you. that's a good point because then you and this is sort of insider talk but fuck it this sure. is kind of what, yeah. what i do with this shit that's why we're here. So, uh, when you start to do these things, so when I started to do the podcast, I was like, I'm just going to do a fucking podcast for people that I know. And it was just, I'm going to talk. And it was for my yeah. client base that I had. And it was like, yeah. here's yeah. what's going yeah. on, blah, 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 blah. So, you do that. All your friends, all people that you know. Exactly. And so right. then I started to realize, I was like, well, my friends and stuff would listen to like the first of two episodes. And like, that's what Mike's doing. Who gives a fuck? And then you start to. <laughs> hear from people all over the fucking place like you have, you know, you start to hear Mm -hmm. people from fucking Australia, you start to hear from people from all over the fucking Mm -hmm. world and they genuinely start to have these questions. And, and through the conversations that we're having, and I'll go back to opening up those fucking neurons and those pathways through the conversations Mm -hmm. that we have today, I'm sitting here going, I'm smelling that burning. Something's interesting. Something, there's something Mm -hmm. that's in there that is going to influence me. So that's my payment process until you get to the point where you're fucking at, where you're doing the indie hustle TV fucking thing. And you're putting out how many hours of fucking content and doing courses and shit like that. And then you hit that point where you go, "Well, I got to fucking charge for time in. Like, how do you decide, like, when do you sit there and go like... I gotta start charging for this. And if, if you start charging for that, does that become your mm. main source of income or is that just supplement the income? And you don't have to answer these if you don't want. But. Oh, no, I have no problem. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing for me, I think.
1: Well, for me, look, I opened up Indie Film Hustle um, first and foremost as a business. It was an online business that I was gonna create and I was still doing post production and directing and things like that on the side. Yep. Um, that was my main source of income and Indie Film Hustle was just kind of a thing that I did, and, but it was a business. Uh, but I did open that business with a true, authentic um, want to help my community. Like from the moment I saw it, because I literally—it took me about a year to launch this. Like I did so much studying, so much research. I read every single book. I listened to every single podcast about creating an online business and and you know finding your niche and all this kind of stuff. And I, I learned SEO and marketing and everything. And uh, I, when I launched, I launched with a vigor. Uh, all of a sudden, I literally was like from no, from no, and I, by the way, when I launched, it wasn't like I had a base to launch from. Right. I, I had been in the olive oil business for three years, which again, it's just another conversation. <laughs> um, but I literally was starting from zero. And right. it wasn't like I had anyone I was, no one was helping me, so I literally, within a month, I was everywhere. Like you could not go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram without seeing me. Mm-hmm. Or seeing content for me. And and they were like, who the hell is this guy? Where'd he come from? And then within three months, I was the number one filmmaking podcast on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's fairly interesting how that worked out. Mm-hmm. The thing I, I saw is when I looked at the space, I saw there was a bunch of people there. You know, there's a bunch of podcasts and people talking about movies, but I didn't see anybody who had my um, my wear and tear. Yeah. Okay, I didn't see anybody who'd been in the business for 20 odd years at that moment, who had, who's done what I've done, and have gone through it and really seen, you know, the darkest darks, as you can see in my book, um, to, you know, the highlights of going to Sundance and, you know, having a film at Sundance, and things like that. So i had never seen any, I didn't see anybody talking like that. And I also didn't see anyone talking real, the real truth. Yeah, like there was just you know, there's people who talk, oh yeah, do this or that, but there was nobody with my style and nobody was like, dude, don't be an idiot. Yeah. Like this is not going to work. You're not going to do this. You need to get off your ass and do this, 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 and this. And I'm not coming from a place of theory. I'm coming from a place that I've done it and I'm doing it as we speak.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So that's that's where I came from. And that authenticity is what people gravitated to because I was, who you're listening to is who I am. Uh, this is not a, an act. You know, I, I am who I am. When people meet me, this is who I am. I'm someone who cares a tremendous amount about my community. And it's something that I actually, I touched that needle 10 years earlier when I released my first short film, Broken, where I was, I I saw in the marketplace at that time, there was nothing in the marketplace. I know it's hard for people to believe, but there was no information about how to make an independent film anywhere online. Mm -hmm. YouTube was, I think, just being released. Mm -hmm. Nobody had any tutorials anywhere in 2005. Uh, 2004, 2005 was just nothing. So I decided, I was like, well, I'm going to make this short film. It's got like 100 visual effect shots in. It. it's an action movie. I'm going to make a, like a five-hour guerrilla film school mm-hmm. and I'm going to put it on DVD and I'm going to sell it. And we sold 5,000 copies of the damn thing. And you couldn't go anywhere online without seeing uh, uh, that trailer. And the trailer's still up on YouTube and it's from 2005. And then <laughs> during that time, I started to figure out that, and that was all instinctual. It was not a plan. There was no, you know, it was a, just an instinctual and entrepreneurial thing that I did, where I'm like, you know, I'm going to create a product for an audience that obviously wants it, and they did. I, mean, I still remember the first day when I launched it. I had already built it up so much that I just heard the dings coming in from my mail from PayPal. Ding, 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 ding. And like the second I released it, people were going crazy. We had to like send out like a thousand, like in the like. And by the way, we had no printer. We hand wrote all of them. We put stamps on all of them ourselves. So we're cool. like, What do we? Do? It was so cool. But I was able to tap into that at that early age. I wish I would have continued that process because I would then own YouTube right now uh, in the filmmaking space. But I decided I was a filmmaker. I'm not going to teach. Uh, you know, Tarantino didn't teach. Scorsese didn't teach like this. Like, ah, uh, yeah, you know. And that bullshit came into my head, and then all of a sudden I just talked myself out of it. Where if I would have literally just kept going, I literally would have owned. I would. I mean, I would be the biggest brand in filmmaking sure. uh, online at that moment sure. if I would have kept going. So. That's probably why. I, that's why I, I do what I do. But I, slowly but surely, as the years went by with Indie Film Hustle, I started seeing the revenue start going up, and then I started building out other products and other things. And I have no issue charging for a product, uh, you know, like like uh, Indie Film Hustle TV, which is the streaming service, like Netflix for filmmakers and screenwriters. You know, the amount of value you get for thirteen ninety nine a month is insane. It's like literally a thousand hours hmm. of courses and documentaries and like it's insane I have no problem charging for that i have no problem for charging for courses that are higher end more elite courses i've got things coming up that are going to blow people's minds right out of the water and i'm literally working on them as we speak which will be coming out in the next few months uh there's a lot of things i'm working on that's you know it's really going to take everything up to another level but the reason why i have no problem doing that is because 95 percent of everything i do is free mm-hmm 95% of all the content I put out is free.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I charge for 5% of it. So I think that's fair. Yeah, And that's a, that's a symbiotic relationship where I'm like, look guys, I'm giving you a tremendous amount of value. If you want to take that value to another place... I'm going to give you something a little bit more exclusive. Or I'm going to give you something that I can't give you for free for either I'm I'm partnering with another instructor or I'm creating something new. I need to build a business here. Because the bigger my business can get, the more reach I can have, the more influence I can have uh, on on my community and the the more service I can be for my community. At the end of the day, it's about building. So I have no issues turning Indie Film Hustle into a multi-million dollar corporation, which will eventually be able to teach and inspire and educate and and give people the real truth around the world on a much larger scale than I'm able to do now. Right. I have no issues with that morally right. at all because I'm being of service, you know, and I have no problem, you know, charging a lot more money in the future for certain massive things that I'm doing because I see the value there. You know, like when when people consult with me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I charge them a certain amount of money per hour. And I always look at it as like, look, the hour that you've spent spending this money on me might save you, or more than likely will save you, five to ten thousand dollars in post-production costs because you didn't know exactly. about workflow. Exactly. And I'm gonna break you, I'm gonna break that down for you. And I'm charging you one hour of my time. Or I'm charging you a package of an hour. So let's, you know, say someone p- pays me two grand for me to break down their post-production workflow for them. And if they didn't do that, it could have easily cost them thirty or forty thousand dollars because I know that for a fact because I've had films come to me that that's happened to mm-hmm. and they run out of money and post and they come to me like can you fix it I'm like well why didn't you call me first you know why did you go with a 21 year old who's never finished a movie before and all of a sudden you gave it to them because they happen to have uh, you know an editing system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. things like that so that's where the value proposition comes in and that's where I have no issues charging for that because I know the value that I'm bringing and by the way that's taken time to build. Yeah. At first I was like, oh, I'm scared, I don't know, this and that. I'm extremely confident in what I do now and and, and extreme value, the value that I present people. I know that most people would charge for the podcasts I put out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The information that I put out on those podcasts, I could easily charge. And it's because it's gold, man. I mean, you got a guy, I just had Matthew Hellerman on, who's uh, the head of finance at Buffalo 8 Films. dude. Dude, like finances like 20 feature films. And I'm not talking about $100,000 features. I'm talking about five, 10, 20 minutes. He did uh, Black Klansman. Like, I mean, they, they like, and I, I'm there for an hour and a half asking him, hey, man, what are you looking for? Hey, man, how should people pitch? Hey, man, how do you go get money? Hey, what's the, the, the... seriously? Yeah, like, would, exactly. you pay, exactly. would you pay? Exactly. Would, would you pay 10 bucks for that? Yeah, yeah. Would you pay 50 bucks for that? Would you pay 100 bucks for that hour and a half? Seriously, I give it away for free. So when I charge for something else, I don't feel bad about it at all. But, but my mindset is about building a business because I want to help more people because I want to make it bigger. You know, I opened up Bulletproof Screenplay because I saw that was part of my audience that wasn't being curated to properly. Mm-hmm. Like they were, you know, people listen to my podcast, it was the Indie Film Hustle podcast, and I did screenwriting stuff inside of that. But like screenwriters don't want to listen to finance. They don't want to listen to self-distribution talk. Right. They don't want to listen to... This kind of stuff. But they do want to listen to Jim Wool, the writer of Fight Club, They do want to listen to, you know, all these other, you know, gurus and people who can help them with their story structure and motivation for that. So I decided to build an entire brand, an entire company around that.
0: Smart. And then
1: I have, because it's an audience, a part of my audience that wasn't being curated to properly. And I wasn't being as much of a service as I could to that side of the audience. And I have other ideas and other things that I'm going to be doing. I wish I had five more of me because I could do a (laughs) lot more. But. uh,
0: Yeah, at the end of the day, it's time. It's all time where you're like, fuck, how much time do I physically have? Have to do these things.
1: Exactly. And, and that's why you read books like Deep, Deep Work. Uh, you read books like uh Habits of High Performers. Uh, you know, you read these kind of books that kind of you really hone in on and optimize your life so you can be of more value and you can be uh, of more help to people. I mean, I, I don't know if it's happened to you, man, but I've met people from around the world, like I'm at AFM. And I, I meet people like it's it's funny because people who are with me, there's like people walk up to me like and I do hate to use the term celebrity, but people who know me, they're like, who the hell are you? Like, I, I didn't know, like you, you were a thing. I'm like, I'm, I'm not a thing, dude. I'm not a thing. Nobody outside of this room knows who the hell I am. Right. I walk the streets quite comfortably. But right. when I go to a, the Sundance or if I go to a festival or a place where, uh, you know, filmmakers are at. I get recognized, and that's fine, and I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it, it's part of the deal. But when I hear the stories that come to me, man, I have people that are like, man, I'm here because of you. You've changed my life. I started writing, Like I literally just got a tweet this morning that's like, dude, thank you for the advice of writing a page a day. I'm now five to 10 pages in a week because of that one habit change. I'm writing a page a day on my screenplays because you told me to do so. Like, that's life-altering stuff. That's mm-hmm. life-changing stuff if I'm able to do that. And when you get a taste of that, man, it's addictive as hell. Mm. It is really addictive when you start getting that because you just see the 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 power. You know, you and me are sitting here with a mic Uh and you don't see an audience. We don't we don't go out to an audience, you know, only when we go out into the world um, and maybe go to some of these events that people really come up to and, and you can see the impact. You see it digitally and you see it through tweets. Sure, things, but, but those are, those are it's, shallow. Th- it's those, not the same. Those are shallow.
0: Yeah, I, same thing, man. I was sitting with a, uh, a buddy of mine the other day and he was just telling me about an episode that I had done Then I was like, well, whatever, it's a fucking throwaway episode kind <clears> of <did throat> the thing and he was like, dude, fucking loved it. And it's just like, oh shit, right, all right. Right. right, 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 right. Like it's the formula's right, it's working right. All right, let it do its thing. It's it's a fascinating, it's completely different than filmmaking and it's, <clears throat> it's been necessary to do, but it's a completely different right. game.
1: It's a different, if it, it's a different skill set, but it's it's not in a lot of other ways because it's an audience that you're trying to be a service of. And I think filmmakers, and generally, I think good filmmakers are, are of service to their audience. Yes. Of course, they're going to be of service to their own vision and to their own ideas of the story uh, and what they want to kind of put out there. But you could always tell when it's an egocentric film; it's all about me and screw the well, audience. Yeah, fuck you. But when you watch a Spielberg movie. Or you know, you watch one of these other movies they're like you could tell that he's he's thinking about what the audience is going to think. I mean, you look at Nolan's work mm-hmm. as self and not self involved, but as as much of Nolan's self is in his work, he does care about what affects the audience. Oh, for sure, you know, and,
0: for sure. I, I, there's no and he I think he studies it, which I think is fucking fascinating. When he starts, oh no, he's he's a he's on another level, dude. Dude, I mean, what's that technique that he was using in Dunkirk? It's a uh, it's that musical oh, fuck my brain it's that musical technique where it's always rising so it's like this weird loop that they build where mm-hmm. tonally it's That like, was Hans Zimmer's too, right? That was Hans Zimmer's? I think so and it's just like banana and it's this constant rise and you know that that's from him examining how that affects the audience and you know right, But that's, that that's Hitchcock very, very, though. It's like fascinating. but
1: that's what Hitchcock that's what Hitchcock did so brilliantly is he understood yeah. if i touch this the audience will do that if i touch this mm-hmm. the audience will do that and and that's why he was as successful as he was because he, he was of service to his audience. He was, of course, of service to himself in that process because sure. it's a story that I want to tell and I want to express myself as an artist and all that stuff. But you, you when you're when you are of service to the audience, people see it, people feel it. Sure. And and all these big movies uh, out in the studio system and even independent films, when you're of service to the audience, it, it you you feel it on a level that you can't. Express, you can't say, it, and you can't hold it and grab it, but you can feel it. And that's what I try to do with my work on a day in, day out basis because, dude, this is ball busting work. Don't think this is easy. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, as well as I do, mm-hmm. this is not easy. I mean, I'm 320 episodes in now on my podcast, and it's actually more like 380 episodes because there's a couple of other things I've done in there. So it's like almost 400
0: episodes. Just booking, and, just booking guests alone. Jesus fucking Christ.
1: I mean, it's just constant um you know mike and i did you know you and i did our podcast what three months ago yep
0: yeah it's been a while
1: three or four months and i told you and i told you i'm like dude it's going to be about three or four months before i get this out because i just got so many other guests already in the can that i have to get out in order totally uh and i have all of that now and i still like and i'm still doing i'm still i gotta slow down because it's just too much content (laughs) but but i i look back and i and i look around i'm like there's nobody else around me like i don't there's nobody up coming behind me that I care about. I'm not in competition with anybody. But sure, I just like oh, I'm just doing me. I'm not competing with anyone. I'm just doing me. But I'm trying to be of service to my audience as much as humanly possible, man. And I'm a little bit psycho about it, you know. I'm the only guy that does two to three podcasts a week <laughs> on one, two, three, two, three episodes a week, and I do two podcasts a week, which ends up being like four. Uh, episodes a week right now there's there's talks of things in the future i won't say them here but there's things that are coming that's going to take everything up to a whole other place you know it's the indie film hustle company and the brand and what i'm doing is going to be if you think i'm if you think this is wild now as as i may quote jack nicholson from (laughs) batman 89 you ain't seen nothing yet (laughs) wait till they get a load of meat
0: (laughs) Well, it's super cool, man. It's it's nice. Like I said, it's nice to actually see what your true, uh, the true meaning behind all this stuff is. And it's nice to see uh, uh, that you really do give a shit, which is good. I think that's a good thing.
1: But did you? But do you see that from the work even before that? I think only when you went to a deep dive did you kind of start feeling that?
0: I, you know what it is, is that you're talking to, like we've said before, you're talking to a very cynical and jaded person. And yeah. you're also dealing it's not necessarily the content that you're putting out. It's it's the it's the inundation of the content the that, industry that you're dealing with. And the algorithm game now on on Instagram, because I'm a content creator, because I'm a guy that does this stuff, because I follow all the podcasts, because all that shit, my goddamn fucking ad feed <laughs> is just loads mm-hmm. and loads and loads and oh, loads yeah. of it. And you're just sort yeah. of going through going like and the photography business. It's oh. especially, and it's because oh. it's because the photography business is tanking, and the, like the clients aren't paying for it. There is no respect for it. If your phone can take a really great fucking shot, why the fuck do I have to pay you good money to come in and take a good shot? Yeah. It's, it's dying out, and you're seeing these high-end photographers that are struggling for income and so a lot of that stuff that you're looking at is like, you, you're a poor motherfucker. You need to make rent. And that's what this is. And that's there's so much of that coming at you where you're like, don't tell me how great the industry is. Be honest with me and tell me how shitty the fucking industry is right now. And tell me how bad it is for, for, for uh, us coming up in it. So that way, maybe I'll think. Tw- it's like me when I originally started, I wanted to get into radio. And so I went and I did radio it's a great
1: classes. It's a lot of growth in that industry, sir. Yeah, a lot of growth. Yeah. A lot of growth.
0: Video stories, I think that's the future. That's the Video future, stories. exactly. So, like, <laughs> have that foresight. Understand, as like, the young people coming up, like, I'm not going to tell young filmmakers, like, it's going to be fucking amazing, you're going to get shit on Netflix, you're going to get on this stuff. Oh, no. Oh, no. It, no. It, it's... It's brutal. That's not why you should do it. And if you really love cinema and you really (laughs) love making movies, the best part is that all this technology and all this stuff is at your fucking disposal. So you can do another job and your hobby could be making movies and doing stuff and putting things out there. It doesn't have to be your main source of income. Um, If you really love fucking telling stories, then take that source of income shit off your fucking plate. And do something mm-hmm. else, and do this for fun. Do this as your hobby. Do this as your fucking getaway. Um, but would you would you agree? And I think you have this:
1: is creating multiple revenue streams. Yeah, you got to diversifying diversifying your revenue stream so it's not all all in one thing. Yep. And then also, if you're starting up, the best advice I could do is get a job in the business. Yep. Whether that be you know if you want to be a singer. Uh you should learn how to work the board. Exactly. And be a, a mixer. You know, if you wanna if you wanna be a director, you know, post-production, not a bad place to make a living. That's oh. what I did. I came up as an editor and then colorist and post supervisor, VFX supervisor, online and all this kind of stuff. But that was what was paying my bills while I was chasing the directing tree. Exactly. Until my directing, you know, got off the ground. But I always had post. So then when I pitched myself out, I'm like, oh I could just do all your posts for you. So now it becomes a company. It's a, you know, creating multiple, multiple revenue streams is the key. It's the key to any business and it's the key to any career. And if you think that you're going to be in a career, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, I'm going to be just an editor for the rest of my life. No, dude, you are not. Mm. Like when I started editing, there was a lot of less competition. Then when I moved out here, I realized that editing, there was everybody was an editor out here. So I'm like, I'm going to be a colorist. Because at least colorists, you still have to be. You still have to get some gear. Yeah, it's not the, the barrier of entry is a little bit higher. Yeah. A little bit, not by much, but a, bit, a little bit. And there was less of them, so then I started doing that. So then when that started getting diluted a little bit. Then I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to do online editing. So I'm going to package myself out as an online editor and a post supervisor, so I can package and, and finish films. In addition to editing, so I put more tools in the toolbox, and I'm like, you know what? I'm, I am I know VFX. I'm going to just do VFX supervising as well on these independent films. So I started doing VFX supervising and packaging it all out, making all those different revenue streams come in. So when one thing's not working, the other thing is. It's picking up, yeah. And that's how, yeah, and that's, that's the way you have to do it. Because if you don't, you're done. You're dead in this business. If you think you're just going to be, I'm just going to cut trailers for the rest of my life. Like, dude. You are not gonna be cutting trailers in 30 years, brother. I hate to tell you, there'll probably be an AI doing it. Exactly. You know, I mean exactly it's and that's the mentality that so many uh, you know people in the in the world have right now that the, the, the days of working for a company for 30 or 40 years and getting that gold watch and retiring, those days are so gone. You're gonna probably be in six or seven different careers in, in your lifetime, if not more, and within the same business. So, you know, like I went from editor to colorist, to post-supervisor to this to director. You know, now I'm a, a podcaster. I own a media company. I'm an education company. All this kind of stuff is happening. I'm constantly pivoting. I'm constantly shifting, and always trying to figure out where I need to be to not only make a living. I'm not as concerned with making a living as much anymore. And I don't. I don't say that flippantly. I, I I've now discovered that when I do things that I truly love, and I have this base that I can pull from, money comes. Money shows up, and that's happened throughout my career. Like you know being a film being an editor in Miami mm-hmm. and making a living as a editor mm-hmm. in Miami in from 97 to 2005
0: mm-hmm.
1: is insane yeah is insane when i got out here to la i was like oh my god i have no idea how i did that like i had no idea so even when everybody else is even if the world's coming to an end there's always someone who's doing okay it was happened in the great depression it happened in 2008 P- there's a lot of people who made a lot of money in 2008 while everybody else was going crazy
0: <laughs>
1: that could be mindset that could be a lot of other things could be luck could be right place right time i think it has a lot to do with mindset and also a little bit of luck sure you know because everyone sees craziness and, every, and when you see crazy everyone's losing their mind. you're like no no let's see how this settles in
0: <laughs> exactly if your mindset's it, fucked you're not you're not going to see luck when luck comes your way
1: so. if you see if, if it's um it's wherever your mind focuses. Wherever your mind focuses is where energy flows. So if you're focusing on the negative on a constant standpoint, ah, oh, this sucks. This is always horrible. I'd never get a chance. I'm like, guess what? That's exactly what's going to happen. But if you're focusing, I'm not talking about positive thinking only. But if you really do focus on your mind on, you know what? I'm grateful that I have this. I'm grateful that I have that. You know, I have this. I have more than most. I have this and that. When you you can't be negative in a grateful state. That has scientifically been proven in a neuroscience lab. When you are grateful, which is an extremely powerful mindset to have, extremely powerful place energetically to be. If you're grateful for what's around you, you can't have a negative outlook on things. It just changes, it changes you when you're grateful. And then when you are of service, you know there was a there was a, a, a science experiment, a science experiment they did where they did control groups. They gave 10 people a hundred dollar bill mm-hmm. and they said you can go out that and buy whatever you want. They gave the other $100, they gave 10 other people another $100, but I'm like, you got to go give it to somebody. And then they checked how they felt
0: <laughs> at the end of it.
1: <laughs> Buy stuff for me or give it away. What feels better? And every single time around the world, because they did it here in the States first, and then they started going to China, they started going to India, they started going everywhere. It all came to send. Because we, are program on an evolutionary way, to give, that's how our our species was able to to continue to grow and become the dominant species on this planet, is because we give, because of community, because of giving to each other, because of helping each other, that's how we were able to get out of the caves and and beat out all the other Neanderthals and other kind of humanoids that were running around here 50,000 years ago or 100 million years ago, whatever it was. Um, Because of that gift of being able to give, and that's why I feel so good. To give as opposed to receive. I don't. I don't. Like Christmas time comes up, I'm telling my wife, like, I don't care. Whatever, just get me a T-shirt. I don't care. I just don't care. Don't. I don't want stuff anymore. I don't want stuff. I'd rather be able to give uh, an experience of help, of knowledge, of a thing that might be able to help somebody. A book. Uh, that's more more important. So everyone listening, try it. Just try. Try to give something to somebody. Whether that even be 30 minutes of your time to talk to. Uh, somebody who might need your help. It feels so much better than take, 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 take. That's again. So I know I, I might have gone a little metaphysical there, but
0: dude, it's great. And honestly, I haven't said anything because I think it's a good spot to end the episode. And I just wanted you. To, I wanted to give you that. <laughs> 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 but it's good, man. It's it's solid advice. I can say <clears throat> from my own personal experiences that it feels great to do. And and I've said it before on the show. I I learned from it. I come up with great ideas from it. I meet really good people. Like we've had a really great conversation mm-hmm. multiple times now. Um, so yeah, I think this is a good spot. I'm gonna end it. This is a good spot. <laughs> Let's go. Let's up. go out on a high. Let's, Let's go, go out, out on, on a, a high. high. Let's do that. Um, I appreciate you being on the show, bud. Um, I don't
1: know. Thank you for having me. It's been infin- I mean literally I could talk for two more hours, but, yeah, it's fine. Uh, it's fine. but I know, but I know. It's fine. I know it's but fine. we're not going to do that.
0: And I have I, things to do. Yeah, well <laughs> let's do this. Let's do let's give you that chance to plug. So if people are interested in your book or into into your stuff, you can take a moment, plug away. What do, what do you got?
1: Uh so every my main hub is indiefilmhustle.com. Uh, is where everything lives mostly, and you can find – it, it kind of goes out from there. Uh, Indiefilmhustle.tv is the streaming service for filmmakers, screenwriters, and content creators. It's kind of like Netflix for filmmakers, available on Apple TV, Amazon, uh, iPhone apps, uh, all that kind of stuff. Then if you want the book, you can go to Shooting for the Mob with two O's, shootingforthemob.com. That takes you to Amazon. Uh, at the moment and you could just buy it on amazon barnes and noble where all fine books are sold uh Uh, if you want to hire me out as a consultant uh or anything like that or speaking engagements if you have a school or something like that just go to alexferrari.com. it has all my information and 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 stuff that i do there and then on social media i'm pretty much indie film at indie film hustle everywhere except for instagram where i'm i film hustle on instagram and uh, that's, I, I'm sure I'm missing something, but that's, oh, and Bulletproof Screenplay. Uh, the podcasts are both on iTunes, so just Bulletproof Screenplay podcast and the Indie Film Hustle podcast are there as well. And uh, I'm sure there's other things I'm forgetting, but that's yeah, basically, no. that's a good thing. Yeah, no. That's, uh, it's enough. It's enough. It's I enough. Mean, I
0: mean, I, I, <laughs> you confirming the fact that you're just a lazy dude that doesn't really do much. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: basically... <laughs> what a lazy yes, guy sir.
0: what a lazy guy with a lot of time on your hands um. yes yes <laughs> all right dude well thanks for being on the show
1: thank you for having me man I appreciate it it's been an absolute pleasure brother. anytime by the way anytime I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk
0: so thanks for listening everybody I hope you learned something new from Alex I know I learned a few different things Uh, like I said on the show I felt like uh, there was some new pathways burning into my brain (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah it was very surprising I was very surprised to see how this episode turned out Uh, and I think there was a lot of really good shit in there Um, and thank you guys for listening I can't say enough but good things about you for listening those of you who continue to support me continue to support the show Uh, those of you who are writing to me all the time and uh, responding to the polls and the questions that i'll put on our instagram account uh, i really appreciate it and when i do these polls and i ask you guys what you do for work i genuinely am curious so definitely reach out because i try to respond to everybody Uh, and i'll do that until i become too busy to do so so i'm here if you guys want to chat we'll talk i'm down Uh, And like I said, if you want to support the show, go to inloveoftheprocess.com. There you're going to find the links for our Amazon stuff. So if you're going to buy stuff on Amazon, use the banners that we have because we'll get paid. So please, I don't care what you're buying, buying fucking toilet paper, use our banner. Um, And then uh, you can also do the Audible trial thing. Check that out. Links below. Everybody that signs up for Audible. If you haven't done so before, uh, we get a little bit of money. So please check that out. You'll get a free trial. You'll get a free book. Do it for 30 days. You'll like it. I promise. Um, and yeah, so uh, what else is going on? We got a couple things on the horizon. Um, I, Gina and I, I don't know if I've talked about it yet. and We'll see when this episode comes out. But uh, we are making the big move. We are going to be headed to California. And uh, we're going to be doing a trip across to L.A., And I'm thinking about actually documenting it for the show because there's a lot of you out there who are like, hey, I'm thinking about doing the LA move and I don't know how it's going to be. We'll we'll tell you. (laughs) We'll tell you as we go through it. Um, And I think that would be a fun thing to listen to. So, uh, yeah, it's been a long episode, so I'll keep this outro pretty short and sweet. As always, thanks to our good buddy Code Electro for the sweet, sweet music that you're hearing in the background. Check him out. Go look him up. Code Electro. His website uh, has the vinyls. He's got really cool vinyls with a lot of this music you're listening to. Uh, so he's an awesome dude. I love him. Check him out. And uh, as always, I love you guys too. Thanks for listening.